Yeah, yeah. And particularly here, you know, in the Bay Area where, um, you know, there was one of those monuments to um, Francis Scott Key, which was taken down on Juneteenth last year. And, um, well, all the more reason that it's that that's that's a very complicated thing to exist to um, have uh, matching those two pieces. Huh? Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad um, it uh, sort of starts out our conversation in a way that is probably intriguing for our audience. So yeah, because, about, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, Francis Scott Key was um, colonialist, mm-hmm. and uh, not, but was um, involved with the uh, Civil War, and that that poem. Uh, talks about the war, and and that's the first verse. But the one that people don't know about, I'm not here to talk about the Star Spangled Banner, but the ones, yes. the, the verses that people don't know about talk about the enslaved, and uh, in not good ways. So it, it's not a good song. Um, Miss Every Voice in Song. Well, let me finish, close that up by saying that uh, the Star Single Banner did not become the United States um, National Anthem until 1929. That was fully uh, 20 years, 25 years after it became the, the uh, Lift Every Voice became the Negro National Anthem. Mm-hmm. So they, the, it's it, it, Star Spangled Banner is late. So then to back up to what our topic is today, mm-hmm. um, uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing started as a poem that was written by James Weldon Johnson. James Weldon Johnson um, was um, a lawyer and uh, a publisher who worked with his brother, J. Rosamond Johnson, um, who was a musician, a composer, and a, and a music director. They were from Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, James Weldon Johnson met Frederick Douglass and the great African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar and W.E.B. Du Bois. They were contemporaries. And um, the Johnson brothers were from Jacksonville, Florida. And when Frederick Douglass came to Jacksonville to celebrate in 1900 to celebrate Lincoln's birthday, so February 12, 1900, 500 children... 500 black children came out to um, uh, hear this poem Hmm. and and learn it. 
lift every voice and sing, which has three verses. A mm-hmm. lot of people know the first verse, not the second and the third. Right. And uh, so the Johnson brothers were, um, you know, James Walden Johnson was admitted to the Florida Bar Association, and he was the first African-American to be admitted to the Florida Bar since Reconstruction, meaning after the um, Civil War. And uh, a year after he wrote Lift Every Voice and Sing, he was almost lynched in Florida, and so then he has to move to New York quickly, where his brother is already working on Broadway. And they start to write together, and they they write some uh, musical theater, and they um, publish books of songs with James Weldon as the uh, lyricist and Jay Rosemont as the as the composer, and then um, uh, James Weldon Johnson becomes involved in the NAACP, um, and they. Uh, adopt, and, you know, in the meantime, J. Rosamond Johnson has written a melody for this poem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. And uh, it becomes very popular. And then the NAACP adopts it. So then it starts to be sung everywhere. It begins to be taught we're talking early 1900s, 1905 to 1909, because that's when NAACP is founded in 1909, that in the meantime, this song starts to get sung all over churches, black schools, and the uh, NAACP adopts it as, um, as its sort of theme, anthem, and then it gets to be named the Negro National Anthem because it's sung everywhere. People begin to stand up when it's sung. It becomes very important to people uh, because everybody knew it. We've lost that, which is sad, and it's one of the reasons that I just did a recording project with the Oakland Symphony Chorus to record both audio and record in video all around the city singing the song because it's really important to get back to our sources. That song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, has been an important source of resilience in the struggle for striving and survival of African American people in America while living under apartheid. Um, so I'll just stop talking there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, wow, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for um you know, the context and the uh the background on the composer and his brother. Yeah, when I was watching uh, a new film that's going to be um debuting um this Friday um at the National Geographic channel and and Hulu about the um Tulsa massacre. Um and mm. it looks at all of the um, the massacres. I mean, there were so many between 1919 and 1921. I mean, it well, was you like see, free reign. It, um, no, no. It, it before then, the the mm-hmm. Wilson 
the Delaware massacre was in 1893. And and the which, and, uh, where was that Wilmington, one again? Wilmington, Delaware. Oh. Mm-hmm. 1893. And so this, after the Reconstruction, these people were bound and determined to both strip the vote from black men because it was only men at that time, mm-hmm. and to um, terrorize them back into free labor. That was the point, right? If mm-hmm. you build up anything, we're taking it away. And and so by the time we get to the NAACP founding, Ida B. Wells has been run out of Tennessee. She is... Um, uh, publishing newspapers about all the lynchings that happened, as many as she can document. Um, that's why you get that sign coming out of the NAACP um, building in New York, a man was lynched today. It's mm-hmm. because of her reporting. They burned her printing press in Nashville. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, these people were bound and determined to push black people back into bondage and to erase the history. So this is why so many people did not know about the Tulsa Massacre until Regina King brought it back into the pop culture by having it in a television show. Um, what was the name of that? Um, where she talks Which, about the the slight future, where she's a police officer that's sort of undercover. Oh, Regina King, really? Oh, I, so I don't think. Yeah, I'm talking about. Uh, I don't have television, so I don't. I can't. Uh, it'll come to me. Um, but anyway, she brought the memory of of the Tulsa Massacre back into the popular uh, mind, and people started to find out about it. And that's why all these mem- uh, memorials are have been so resonant for people, is because they watched something on television. But we have to mm-hmm. start repeating our history and teaching our history to our children and repeating it ourselves. One of the reasons that it disappeared is because those uh, white people in uh, Tulsa stripped it out of the newspapers, stripped it out of the police record, because they did not want a record of it. Mm -hmm. They want our history to disappear. So when we hear people um, misusing the term um, – critical race theory, first of all, they cannot define it. They don't know what it is. But second of all, understand that the point of it is to disappear our history. And we cannot allow that. Right? We, we have to, this is why I'm, I focus on African American spirituals in my scholarship and why I have um, a mixed race group singing with every voice we sing. We cannot have our history disappeared. 
And that's up to us, right? Because here's the Mm -hmm. thing about young people and about black people in particular is that we are always on the cutting edge. We are always doing the new thing. But then what does that mean? It means we forget if some of us do not take up history because otherwise our history is told back to us in ways that are not correct. Right. Yeah. Um, how um, I was I, the reason why I mentioned um, uh, Tulsa and I mentioned the film uh, is because James Weldon Johnson is the person who coined the term um, uh, Red Summer um, because of all of these, all of the fires, you know, of all of these black communities being. Um, set ablaze because of this, um, you know, terrorism that was happening to black communities, right. prosperous black communities. And, and we know that and remember it because he became the uh, executive director of the NAACP in 1920 and was mm-hmm. the director for, for 10 years. Mm-hmm. So we have a poet, a lawyer, a poet, a publisher, as the mm-hmm. executive director, one of the first African American executive directors of the NAACP, because it didn't. The first executive director of the NAACP was white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's yeah. the executive secretary of the uh, NAACP from 1920 to 1930, which is, um, which is, you know. Uh, a year before Tulsa Massacre, and um, in 1919, he was a speaker at a conference on lynching. So he knew well the history from 1893 and even before of the uh, of of the um, lynching the mass lynchings and mass massacres that were occurring all over the country. Now, we're talking about Tulsa. I, I'm not sure people understand um, the importance of the city of Tulsa in African American history. So, Tulsa became a draw. Well, Oklahoma itself became a draw for African Americans who were becoming refugees out of um, bondage and away from some of these massacres because Oklahoma was not yet a state. There, and and, and um, so they were fleeing to the Oklahoma Territory. In fact, to this day, the eastern part of Oklahoma is still called Indian country, Indian Territory. And the western part is called Oklahoma Territory. So um, Oklahoma was a free state, and a lot of black people moved to Oklahoma, different towns. And then as there started to be more and more people and industries built up in Tulsa, a lot of those black people in the smaller Oklahoma towns then consolidated and moved to Tulsa, which is why we have this group of black people who are business folk, farmers, educators, um, 
ministers um, congregating and gathering in this single town. So it was a process. They didn't just, oh, well, there's Tulsa, we're going to move. No, it was a process. And it was, it happened because Tulsa, because Oklahoma was not a state in the, in the uh, racist American Union. Until now, okay, and and Native American people and Black folks were in um, community in Oklahoma. They were cooperative in business, in farming, and some there was intermarriage. Um, there was a full cooperation between Native Americans and Black folks in Oklahoma, and there was a fear because of their knowledge that once it became a state, they were going to be in trouble. And precisely the thing that they feared happened. The, the white people in Oklahoma got statehood in 1907 and very quickly and then very aggressively started to enact this, tra- this trauma and um, uh, pressure on the Native and Black communities in Oklahoma once it became a state in 1907. And then the, the, fine, the big result was that in Tulsa, um, it, it got uh, burned down. Now, there's a lot of question, too, about the, the, the event that supposedly started this, this race massacre. It was supposedly this young guy... First of all, he was in downtown Tulsa. He was not allowed to use any of the restrooms downstairs. So then he had to go upstairs on an elevator to a, a restroom, a segregated restroom. Because he was a, uh, working in a keystone shop, right? Black-owned keystone shop. And he had to go upstairs. He's arrested. Something happened, electrical or something. This is 1921. Something electrical happened with the elevator and jostled. They say he bumped into this girl who was running the elevator. And for people who don't know, elevators were operated by actual humans. My mother used to do that when she grew up in Galveston, Texas. Um, he bumped into her and not wanting to have any altercation runs out of the elevator. Now, his family says, actually, that he knew this girl and that they were friends. Mm-hmm. So, so there's controversy around the story. But needless to say, um, he, this encounter is, gave the white people in Tulsa um, a story to claim in order to try to lynch him. And the black community in Tulsa was so large and full of veterans that they went and armed themselves to protect him. And over the course of this protection, the white people decided, see, there are airfields around um, Tulsa. And over the course of the night, they decided they're going to come back and they're going to bomb uh, the black community. The black people are downtown at the courthouse help, car, trying to guard this, this kid. 
and everything quiets down. They think, okay, this is going to be okay. No, come dawn, they start bomb firebombing from the air the black community, the whole black community, which was 35 square blocks. I was there in Tulsa on May 5th for a concert that commemorated the massacre. Mm. My father was born 50 miles from there. Mm. Five years after the massacre. Wow. I had never been to Oklahoma before. But um, clearly my ancestors were pulling me to be here at, there at that event. Yeah. And because I don't yeah. really know, it, it's kind of crazy the way that it happened. It just kind of looks like, well, are you coming? Uh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Um, yeah. Ah, did you get a chance to go to, um, you know, where your father was born? Um, no, I didn't get a chance to do that, but I was certainly on um, Greenwood Avenue. And I visited, oh. I was outside the church, Mount Vernon uh, mm-hmm. Baptist yes. Church, which is the only structure that's built on top of something that remains from the time. Mm-hmm. Wow. And it's very poignant because, of course, Green, what people don't know, the story is not being told. And we need to tell this story, folks. After 1921 and the burning... A lot of people hid in the basement of the church. So the basement was the only thing that survived. Um, And then the church was rebuilt. And then the entire community was rebuilt. And it was, in fact, then until the 1950s, more prosperous than it had been in 1921. I'll say it again. Greenwood was in Tulsa. The Greenwood, Black Greenwood District in Tulsa was rebuilt after the 1921 massacre and became more prosperous than it was into the 1950s. What destroyed Greenwood was the same thing that has destroyed Oakland and the same thing that has destroyed all these black cities that existed around the country, and that was redevelopment. They built Mm. a a freeway through it. Oh, wow. And it killed it. Same thing they did in Oakland. Built a freeway Mm -hmm. through our black district. We have to remember. We have to remember what's happened. Mm -hmm. Really important. I want to recommend um, Karen Hunter, uh, who is a professor and a a radio show host, has Mm -hmm. a a show that comes on on YouTube, and then she's creating a a separate um, portal that holds a lot of this information. She she hosts a weekly show on Saturdays from, I think, 9 9 a.m. to 11 Pacific time. Um, uh, on on YouTube with Dr. Greg Carr, who's the head of the African American Studies Program at Howard University. Dr. Carr is a brilliant African um, American and Afro uh, historian, mm-hmm. um, and they have had weekly conversations through the entire COVID period. They're now about to go on week sixty six. 
Oh, my goodness. Wow. And so it's it, it's all archived on, on YouTube. You go to uh, look up Karen Hunter on mm-hmm. um, YouTube, or the show is called In Class with Carr, C-A-R-R. And you can find uh, Dr. Carr on Twitter, Africana Carr, C-A-R-R. Um, but his knowledge of Africana studies and African-American history, he all of these kinds of incidents, the history of the Haitian Revolution, um, Ida B. Wells, uh, W.B. Du Bois, and then they get into people that we don't know, the histories of our, our greats that we have lost. I highly recommend this to your whole audience. Please go to YouTube, go to Karen Hunter's show, uh, look it up. It, it's called In Class with Carr, C-A-R-R. And there are 65 episodes of deep Africana studies, history of African-American um, history in this country that we need. Your children need it, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for the resource. And going back to um, your mention of Regina King, is the show that you were um, thinking of um, uh, Southland? Or, no. um uh See Jerry Maguire. Um, no, I think it starts with a B. A B, like in boy. Yeah, yeah it's okay. It was a series on HBO. I can never. Oh, it's on HBO. It. Okay. Yeah. It was. I don't. I don't watch television either. <laughs> right. That's, that's, uh, yeah. But she, her, that series. Um, started this new knowledge of the Tulsa Massacre because the show starts with the Tulsa Massacre. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it shows, uh, it follows a child who is looking up and seeing the bombing. Oh, it's called Watchmen. I was wrong. It's called Watchmen. It's called what? Watchmen. 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 Oh, Watchmen. Okay. And um, she she actually brought black people's knowledge of Tulsa of the Tulsa race mass massacre forward into popular knowledge. And you know, people people were threatened. White people threatened yeah. black people. To not talk about this in public. Mm-hmm. This is why it was That's hushed. Right. So as soon as the people mm-hmm. who experienced it um, could not pass the knowledge on to their children except through whispers, we lost it. Mm-hmm. Right? Because right. there was no there was no Twitter, there was no television. The news of it didn't get out. They suppressed it. Mm-hmm. And when you suppress people's, um, when you suppress the news, you suppress people's history also, right? Because they'll stand there, okay. they are have been standing there saying, what do you mean massacre? That, nothing happened. A couple black people came downtown and rioted. That's the story, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But we can't, we, we can't let that happen. And the way that we don't let it happen is that, we not only stay on the avant-garde with all the new things that we discover and create, but we must 
become dedicated to history and to researching our history, to becoming historians, to teaching our children history, to um, invoke their curiosity. Every child is curious. Invoke their curiosity about the past. Our history does not start with enslavement. I'm going to say it again. Our history does not start with enslavement. We go back. That's why, um, you know, a lot of people are doing Ancestry.com and 23andMe and they're studying their genetic history. This is important because you learn where your DNA came from. And then you can go back to read about the histories of the peoples in those West African countries. And then you can start to learn, you know, stop, you don't have to listen to uh, uh, music that was created last week. You can start to listen to some spiritual hip-hop. You know, my family has a spiritual hip-hop band, Prosperity Movement. You can learn about the um, religious practices of the people that you came from. You can go back and listen. You can go on um, YouTube or uh, iTunes or and listen to West African music right now. You can go on Spotify. You can listen to West African music right now. And deepen your understanding and appreciation of your historical culture. And know where you came from. Because you have to remember when... Uh, we were ripped from the continent and plundered and brought here as in chattel slavery, there were no names listed. There are very few people who can list the names of their ancestors because people were listed as property under just their gender and age. So we lost, again, our history was disappeared. But we did not start here, our history does not start in the United States. Our history does not start with enslavement. My mother, 90 years old, 91 soon, knew her great-grandmother who was brought to this country as a five-year-old enslaved child. Now let me say that again. She was, my mother knew her great-grandmother the first, the first nine years of her life. So her great-grandmother died in 1939 at the age of 104, which means she was born in 1835, right? Let's do the math. 1835. Hmm. So she was five years old when she was brought to this country, 1840. When did legal... Um, Importation of slaves end in America. Uh, was it 1919? It no, was no, no, not. Eight, no, it, not. It was 1819. 1809. Because, yeah. 18, what was so this is why we have to know our history so we can understand yeah. what's happened. Because so, I remember when the centennial happened. Yeah. Mhm. 1807-1809, legal right. importation. So we, we have now heard about Mobile, Alabama, and Africatown, mm-hmm. Africatown and, yes. and the Clotilde. 
but that was not the only shift that that happened. That was in 1860. My great-great-grandmother was brought to this country in 1840, clearly wow. on an illegal mm-hmm. slave ship. Mm-hmm. But our our history is disappeared. So the only reason that we know is because my mother's mother was curious enough to ask her grandmother-in-law about her story. Hmm. In fact, my mother's other cousins, who you know, whose parents were that that, that mother's grandchildren, they didn't ask. So we we have to be curious about our history. And so this was again, you know, black people who had been enslaved who lived into the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, into the 1930s, we mm-hmm. have to buy, go buy those, go to Marcus Books and buy the slave narratives, but read the ones that were told to African-American writers because the ones that yeah. were told to white writers, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it was okay, we lived, da-da-da-da-da. No, don't read those. Read the ones, that's why it's important to read Zora Neale Hurston's book, Barracoon, B-A-R-R-A-C-O-O-N. Zora Neale that's Hurston a great book. Yes. was an mm-hmm. anthropologist. She wrote that book in 1927. It was, mm-hmm. the white publishers would not publish it because she refused to change the speech of the man about which it was written, who was the last survivor of that clotilde. Um, ship, that last illegal slave ship. He was 18 years old when he was kidnapped from Africa in 1860. So she interviewed him in in in, the, in 1927 when he was in his 80s. And he talked about his life. He talked about the way that um, native-born African Americans laughed at him for being an African laughed at his children for being African. These people built their own church. It's still mm-hmm. standing in northern Mobile, Alabama, in what's called Africa Downs. There's a there's a bust of his face on in front of the church. This should mm-hmm. be a pilgrimage for African Americans. Yeah. You should it go. Was really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I've been. Yeah, it was great. Um Hmm. So back to your um your great grandmother. Um I was wondering where um cuz you mentioned your father was born in Oklahoma. Um but you had never been there. So obviously your family must have migrated from there. Uh where yeah, he where, did, to, where did your father's family in. go? Oh. Well, it's in the same migration that Isabel Wilkerson talks about. Right? Mm-hmm. The, people were run yeah. out. You know, black people are refugees. We are refugees. If we don't live in the South, we are refugees from domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. That was a forced migration. And so his family moved to Los Angeles when he was 14. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then. And, 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 then and, okay. And. And then you were raised here? I was born and raised in Berkeley. Okay, okay. And and then on your um 
so is it your father's side, you know, with your great great grand with your great grandmother, or is that your mother? No, side? no, no, my mother, my mother. Okay. And you know, okay. she she was um, she wrote in the 1900 and the 1910 census what her mm-hmm. name is and where she was from, and it says in her handwriting, Guinea, West Africa. Oh, wow. Yes. So that's what I'm saying is history is important. You have to know where you came from. Our history does not begin with enslavement. Mm -hmm. Wow. How wonderful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Where can people... um, listen and see um the recording that you made um uh of James Weldon Johnson's um Lift Every Voice that you mentioned earlier in our conversation. It's in it, it is in production. So the Oakland Symphony okay. Chorus which I uh, am the director of, we perform mm-hmm. with Oakland Symphony which is conducted by Michael Morgan and um the chorus because of the covid period we could not meet together. But we worked together every week, and I um, uh, created a curriculum for them to learn about music, more about music theory and um, ear training, and I held a master class working on their individual singing. And one of the things I asked them to do was to memorize, lift every voice and sing. And Mm -hmm. that was a, a, a study project. And I've wanted to have a recording of us singing Lift Every Voice and Sing for all the sports um, games that happen, you know, the A's, the Giants, the Warriors, so that we would sing that song at the beginning of these games, right? And Uh so this this period gave us the opportunity to create the recordings. And so um, three weeks ago, we came in, and this is still mass because of COVID, we audio recorded first the sopranos and the altos and the tenors and the basses they came in one group at a time and we recorded the audio and the editor who is one of my tenors put it together and then we took that recording and then we went out to um eight or ten different places in the city of oakland we went to the stairs the uh, cleveland cascade stairs at the lake we went to the Oakland Rose Garden. We went out to the port where the cranes are. We um, we went to Jack London Square. We went um, uh, to a place in Chinatown. We went downtown at Frankogawa Plaza where the city hall is. Um, and we recorded video of us singing the song around town. And that's now in process. It's being edited together. And as soon as it's available, you'll see it on our website, oaklandsymphony.org and oaklandsymphonychorus.org. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. And, and, and I was wondering... I'm hoping, um, any of your, mm-hmm. I'm hoping that any of your audience members that are affiliated with any of those sports clubs propose that that recording or us live come to sing Lift Every Voice and Sing as the national anthem instead of Star Spangled Banner. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I I'm not sure if if this is true or not because I don't know um, where the information um, generated was was generated from. But I thought that um, Lift Every Voice was going to be the national anthem for this country uh, until uh, they learned, whoever makes those decisions, that a person of African descent composed it. Uh, That sounds apocryphal, right? Pardon me, say that again? Yeah, I I um I can't speak to that. Okay. Yeah, um because you mentioned how um you know the the current um national anthem. I can see I can see how that um uh, that story was created, but mm-hmm. um oops. Sorry, I I've got an appointment coming up. That's my reminder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, sorry. Did you? Okay. I um I I wasn't sure if you were finished with what you were saying. That oh, you oh yeah that no 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 that that's it I I don't um I I don't um know a lot of history about uh, I mean I know about why uh, he wrote the um, Star Spangled Banner but um, I don't like to give that a a lot of energy because um, No, I didn't want you to give it any energy. I was just saying that um, I had heard that James Weldon Johnson's um, poem was considered because there were other other piece other writings that were considered for the national anthem, and I, that I, was one of the considerations. And it was I, tossed I hope, because I of, of, the, of the writer. I hope you, yeah, I hope you mm-hmm. find out what the actual history is because we don't want to. Oh, sure. We don't want to. Send that story around. Yeah, I, um, I, that's why I asked you, had you. Did you know it? Um, but yeah, I could I could trace it down and see where I learned it. Um, and I was wondering, um, sort of, uh, you know, because you mentioned you have an appointment, and, and thank you so much for you know giving us more time than you had had agreed to. Um, Representative um, James Clyburn um, proposes to make "Lift Every Voice" um, our national hymn, and um, yes. Yeah, and as long as you could talk a little bit about that, it's a bill in Congress, and and then sort of coupled with the 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 notion that um, Juneteenth might be a national holiday. Um, no, it actually did happen. Oh, it did happen. Oh, it is now. That's what I that's what oh. I heard last night. Okay, okay, because I was reading what I read before that that it was. It hadn't happened yet. Oh, so it has happened. Oh, that's wonderful. I I did hear that on the news. Maybe that person misspoke. And I'm gonna uh, look again, it up. <laughs> we've <laughs> got to do our our research. And I I'm actually looking up this um uh this history oh, of the wow. key poem. Um, and okay. actually, it became the 
national anthem in 1931. Oh, okay, 1931. Okay. Oh, um, I was off by two years, but um, yeah. But yeah, they, it, um, James Holden Johnson's poem "Lift Every Voice" was not in contention there. Okay. The contenders were uh, "America the Beautiful" and "Yankee Doodle." <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Uh, Wow. So it says here that um, um, yesterday the Senate unanimously, unanimously, anyway, they all passed a resolution establishing Juneteenth as a federal holiday and it needs to yes. pass to the House and be signed by President Biden in order to become a law. Oh, well, they so that's weird. On it. They passed, so they, they yeah. passed it, but it has to be voted mm-hmm. on. Okay. Exactly. And he, is, yeah. he will he will find that, yeah. Of course he will. Oh my gosh, isn't that cool? <laughs> yes. That is so awesome. That's that is cool. really, really now, here's awesome. The thing, here, but here's the thing about that. If you're yes. not from if you're not from Texas, mhm. That that's not your history. I actually have a mm-hmm. uh, had a um a, a fellow student at IU Bloomington, whose daughter was doing her master's thesis on the days that each state found out about emancipation. Oh, how wonderful. Oh. Right? I don't know if that book yeah. was not created. I've, I've tried and tried to oh, find it. Oh, I hope it. so. Yeah, um, let me know. I, I would like not... to read that. Okay, but what I'm saying is mm-hmm. Juneteenth was the date for Texas, because it was the farthest okay. west. Mhm. Um, in you know Missouri, in Oklahoma, and Mississippi, and Maryland, and Tennessee, in all in all those um, other states, the date is earlier. Mhm. Right. Because so like Washington D.C. is really early. Mhm. Yeah. So we have to know our our history, right? Because. We mm-hmm. can't go around saying, "Oh, we all became free on Juneteenth." That's not true. Mm-hmm. It's the celebration for when the people in Texas finally found out. Mm-hmm. Right, and and they but were the last. Right. Weren't they the last community to find out because they were the furthest away? Not not only because they were the furthest away, because the white people knew. They didn't mm-hmm. want to tell the enslaved people until they got through the planting season. Mm. That's that. That's why they found out in June. The, the information was withheld. Right. Yeah, that's true. So. So you know when we tell the story, I'm I'm happy about Juneteenth being celebrated because it ties um, a, a national holiday to the celebration of emancipation. That is a good thing in America. But yes, it is. Mm-hmm. It is not the day that Black people were free in the United States. Mm-hmm. So we just yeah. 
know know our full history and tell our children our full history. Mhm. Yeah. Well, technically, our ancestors used to celebrate the Jubilee, which is um, you know January first, eighteen sixty three, when the Emancipation Proclamation became law. That was the exactly. Day. You know, the Watch exactly. Night. You know that people exactly. celebrated. So, so Imani, you know, for Kwanzaa, is also the Jubilee. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know the. the I'm glad that you brought that up because the 1st of January is also a very poignant um, date for uh, for the enslaved because that was also the date that a lot of families were split up. Mm. It was it was the reckoning day for a lot of those uh, white plantation owners, and mm-hmm. um, and they. Often, often the first day of January was the last day that a lot of enslaved black people saw their families. Wow. So, so that's why wow. it. That's why New Year's. You, you, you know this history of of black churches where they have watch night. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. On on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Yes. And people don't even realize. That is because of the practice of the enslaved being sold on New Year's Day. Mm. That's where that practice came from. Wow. Yeah, and people are still enacting that practice, and we don't mm-hmm. know why. Uh, yeah, I I was told that it was watch night because of the Emancipation Proclamation becoming law on January no. 1st. But that's not it. It's Wow, so families, they were together, and they knew this was the last night they'd be together. Yeah. Wow, that's terrible. And then we, and then we yeah. call it Happy New Year's. Like, happy for whom? Right. Hmm. Wow, that's, yeah, no, I, I didn't know it was... Wow, that's really wrong. Right. So then, what people were saying about that? But it got transformed because of mm-hmm. the Emancipation Proclamation. So then mm-hmm. it became a celebration. Right. But it's yeah. the day that's a celebration. The so watch night is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the morning. Uh huh. Is the morning when we come together. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, this is really rich. Yeah, thank you so much yeah, for the conversation. This is really rich. Wow, this is this is wow, this is really awesome. Um Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's just so amazing that, you know, this this man, you know, James Weldon Johnson, uh, you know, his he was born on Juneteenth. I didn't even know that until <laughs> recently. I'm like, oh, his birthday is June nineteenth. How how appropriate. <laughs> and it would have been 150 this year. I wonder what he would say about. 1871. 1871. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's really important, um, as you say, to know our history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, this is great. 
So um, are you still at Sonoma State? I am. I'm semi-retired. I teach in the fall, and I, my show goes up um, in February every, for every year. But uh, um, um, that's for five years. I'm on my about to go into my third year, or is my second year? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm about to... It's a short period. It's a five-year period, this transition out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're, you're, um, you're in the middle of your transition. I am. Good for you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah, wow, I'm, I'm really looking forward to your, your stories about Guinea, you know, your, your family's homeland. You I I have to tell you know I, I I made my first trip to the continent in December to visit my daughter who was living in um, Tanzania uh, in East Africa and I thought for sure my first trip was going to be to West Africa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I want to say one more thing. I want to say one more thing for your audience if they're not Certainly. aware of it. So on Netflix, there's a four-part series called High on the Hog. And I know a lot of people don't eat pork, but don't let that deter you. So <laughs> High on the Hog is a culinary story about um, African and African-American food ways, food practices, and history. It is, it is transformational. It starts in Benin. So, again, mm-hmm. our history does not start with enslavement. This story starts in Benin. It's based on a book by Jessica Harris, but um, it's a brand new, um, less than a month old Netflix four-part series. I recommend it to everyone. You're going to learn things about African food history, about who invented uh, mac and cheese. You'll be surprised. So Mm -hmm. highly recommended. Wow, thank you. Yeah, I was just thinking about, um, uh, you know, how how our our people, you know, African ancestors were um, uh, the way that they were um, targeted for particular industries, you know, like the rice farmers and the tobacco oh, folks absolutely. and um, and the folks that were doing husbandry and I mean it was it was intentional, you know, they were going after skills. That's right. Well, let me say this. The first mm-hmm. celebrity chefs in in America mm-hmm. were the enslaved chefs of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Yes, I read about that. Yeah. Mhm. So, <laughs> yeah. Mhm. Yeah, they were they were taken around those, the, to to the other yeah. to like France, you know? I mean, they were that good. Those are the those are the celebrity chefs and when they were brought to areas where they might have emancipated themselves, they were quickly brought back so that mm-hmm. they could be kept in bondage. Now, when people want to call those people the fathers of founding fathers of your country, understand what your history is. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, they well, were I want you kept. to enter. Yeah. yeah. You gave me um, – you... Uh, you sent me um, uh, an appropriate uh, rendition of Lift Every Voice, and I wanted to know if you could introduce it uh, before you leave. Yes. 
Okay, um, this is by uh, 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 All Male Sex Tech um, called Committed. I think that's all I need to say about it. You can find it on YouTube. So this is Lift Every Voice and Sing, sung by the All Male Ensemble Committed. Okay, excellent. I want to thank you for the invitation, Wanda. This is wonderful, and I'd love to have a recording if it's possible. Oh, yeah, certainly. I'll send you a link, and um, and, and we're also on iTunes as well. Um, yeah, this has been really, really marvelous, and I look forward to our, our next conversation, um, particularly after I get a chance to um, to watch and listen to, um, you know, um, the uh, the chorus, you know, singing this the song in these various places, you know, throughout the bay. Oops, I lost you. Oh, I said um, I've been looking forward to, uh, you know, having continuing our conversations, um, and I'm really looking forward to to seeing and listening to the recordings that you all have made yeah. um, with this yeah. particular um, song, and uh, and then you know Let hopefully, you yeah, and hopefully you know the uh, the words that. Lift every voice. We'll be able to, um, you know, um, with illuminate, um, be put on the um, uh, the plinth uh, in Golden Gate Park uh, with the ancestors, uh, the 350 ancestors um, monumental reckoning. Um, yeah. As a part of that exhibition, and and maybe the choir might be there singing right there on site well, when that I, happens. I, that would be. I have offered that they are willing to cross the bay in order to do it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Obviously we're based in Oakland. But mm-hmm. um yeah. They are they are yeah. willing to do it because they are committed to the to the history and preserving the song. Mm-hmm. Which makes me very happy. Right. Oh that's excellent. Excellent. Of course. All righty. Well thank you again so much. Um and have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Take care. You too. Peace and blessings. Bye-bye. Bye.
Fletcher's grandness, the heir to his big bandness, 
for the master arrived to forever lay out the blue wonderfulness of the orchestra. Duke Ellington, whose greatness transcends all trends. Duke told Max, don't let them call your music jazz, because they can make anything that. What prophecy, cold and true? Why, they can say what your boy, what's-his-name, Elevator G is playing, is that? You did? But then, what's-his-name was the king of jazz? And what's the other dude was the king of swing? And we now up to in that alley, banging on them tin pans, they call it swing. But they meant a noun, not a verb. Never could get the verb in it. Remember all them ladies and men, masters and mistresses of the verbal thing? Ethel Waters in her blue, new American classical popular song. And Billy, who reached the deepest tear in our heart. And Ella, all flying off them wonderful bands who carried our hearts, our meaning in their songs. The royalty like Duke and the Count of Basie. The lady who made her alliance with the real American president, Mr. Young. And you know they swung. Bean, the mighty hawk, taught us all how Lewis sounded on another horn. And the cats in their band, Duke's people at the top of the steeple, Johnny Hodges, Harry Carney, Cootie Williams, Cat Anderson, Paul Gonzalez, Ben Webster, and other greats who morphed into another age. If the 20s was the jazz age, then the 30s, the Great Depression. People seemed like they got skinny. But the age of swing, from all those songs, the world was looking for love, but it seemed like there wasn't any. Goose stepping in Europe, pain in Spain. They was painting mustaches on the Mona Lisa and putting a commode in the museum. Had civilization stopped? My man Helene said they couldn't stop bebop, and they won't stop hip-hop. Bird blue, dizzy new. Max carried our original earth to this place where we grew. Bud smiled, and here come miles. There was a bee and a bop. It's just another beat, another bee and another act. Where the is and the unis cohabit the same frame. But the sound was a verb, not a noun, unless you couldn't Congo style really get down our share shake. But then the could did, and then them original hipsters appeared with the Vance and the Baudio Rudy. Said you gotta have them black notes, actually they is blue. I want my fist flatted. And you gotta have the drum where we and the music come from. Dig, that word was the first I heard. It all can't be on paper. For the proper syncopation, you gotta have improvisation. You gonna take them tired chords and make our own songs, our own stories. Otherwise, it's too dull. It don't swing. It ain't hip. We said we wanted wild, crazy, frantic. We wanted it to be exactly like us. Gone from the square world or out to lunch. My man Symphony said from the jazz corner of the world, it sounded like there was never anything before us hip as Birdland and this lullaby where I first heard the divine one. Sassy say, you're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy. You're not that kind of a boy for a girl like me. What? And we heard of Fats Navarro and Fat Girl and Kenny Clark and Coog and Long Tall Dexter Gordon and Stan Getz and Zoot Sims. We heard the hippest people in the world. But remember, when you go out, somebody's going to try to bring you back in. Bop was too hot, the anti-bop squad say. Too fast, too crazy. Crazy, we said. The counterattack was to bring it back. We all been out to lunch too long. Whether it was swing or bebop, Disney dream. If you wanted a cop, you had to hit the street. An old road out of the jungle, that's 52nd Street. Where the Charleston hit the New York docks. 12th Avenue was a shock. From Angola to the Gullahs in South Carolina, got the first thing smoke, went up to New York. Charleston, James P. wrote. Greet those who landed in the Devil's Northern House. Hell's Kitchen to be exact. San Juan Hill, Monk and Benny Carter's home, where Lincoln Center sits still. That's right. He on the only money that ain't white. 
But what we was trying to say, when it got too hot, some folks tipped away from that street. I think it was the heat. Last seen heading west, their next address. It was cool, really cool. Some said, calm down. Miles said, get down. Stan heard, Clue, Budo, Jerry heard, Lee heard, John Lewis heard, Gil Evans heard, Pancho Haygood heard. They gave birth to the school, the real birth of the cool. When the memory of the hip starts to slip, the gorgeous blue, the funk we knew, they're going to bend their knees and raise it back from the mood indigo that flows out of the black. What was bad could be bad. Much, much better than that. That's spoke that. So when Cool started to fool with my man Jojo's soul, he went out and put the church in. Where the Negroes' eyes be rolling back in their head and start speaking some stuff ain't never been said. A dude named Buhena played them drums like he was insane. I'm from the blue continent of dark under your heartbeat. Dudes named Horace drugged the funky gospel into the joints, hollering, let me see what you do with your shovel. And the Holy Ghost popping his tambourine, chick a ching rattle in the room. That's nasty when you bring Africa and the Lord in like that. He wanted the messengers from the Holy Ghost Mau Mau Baptist Church, and they got a message from Kenyon 125th Street. The University of Blakey, the Academy of, well, it might have seemed like that, but it really was this, where you could dig Hank Mobley and listen nobly to the man who called the uncrowned king, Kenny Dorham, but always so many others came to fill up the space with names of that school, Clifford Brown, Lou Donaldson, Chrissy Hee, Donald Bird, Jack McLean, Lee Morgan, Benny Goldson, all the way to Billy Harper and Wynton Marcellus. With all that love and the saving of the deep historical bonds, the blues, the ancient call and response from across the trees and through the woods so you know where I am and I wait for your response. Our blue life memory all the way back across the world. The zigzag of chance, the improv, and fix however to the mighty drum, the rhythm of life, what has no beat cannot stay. What was called hard bop was something to wake us up again to the rhythm of ourselves. Max and Brownie, along with Buhena, helped bring the fire back. The post-cool smoke fanned from the wings of the great bird, but now the heavy motion would be by train. We call that band of miles the Hydrogen Bomb and Switchblade Band. Paul and Red, Cannonball, the Funkus, Mad Philly Joe and Train, the monster with the horn. Actually, Miles' great band was but a preface to another awesome being, Trains, Coy Tyner, Jimmy Garrison, Elvin Jones. But Train had to pass through the sphere of Theolonius to get deep into the mysterioso of the trunk, leaving the world of the merely hip for the monkishly profound. Monk and Train at the five spot opens a new world of other than where you've been. Let me tell you, I was there. Train didn't even know the arrangements. He sounded like a stranger. But in a minute, Train was in it, and the whole building moved and pulled away. Little Rudy Tootie, Jackieing and Monk's mood. Surround so midnight, the new music came. We never was the same. By the time they got from the Bowery to Carnegie Hall, must have been time for something next stop new. Even a pharaoh, an ornette, an Albert, a Sun Ra fell by. They heard trains cry. Monks blew inside. A new world welcomed those with ears to hear. Ah, that was the voice of Amiri Baraka and um and Billy Harper and um that was it's one of my favorite pieces and um <laughs> I didn't think it to end so quickly. 
so I'm not quite ready. But what I'm going to play next is I want to say happy birthday to Tupac Amaru Shakur. Today is his birthday. And I want to say happy birthday to Sister Beatrice X, um, whose birthday is also today. Um, he was born on her birthday, and she is a part of the duo um, with Uncle Bobby uh, of Love Not Blood campaign. And uh, she is going to be calling the names of of our ancestors who were killed by police on Friday at the Monumental Reckoning at Golden Gate Park in the concourse at the Speckles um, uh, Temple of Music, between the Speckles Temple of Music. We're going to be singing Lift Every Voice, and we're going to be ending up at the Plinth, where 350 ancestors uh, sculpted by the wonderful Dana King are going to be holding that space holy and uh, looking forward to having everyone come out and and welcome these 350 ancestors to this space um, to clear it, to purify it, and to claim it for black lives. And um, it's going to start at 5 o'clock. Um, or 5.30, um, go to monumentalreckoning.org for all the details. And uh, you should wear white if you're a person of African descent and you're interested in participating in the uh, procession, definitely reach out and let us know. Um, it's not too late to join us. Alrighty, so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play um, an interview that I had with a wonderful, wonderful, award-winning uh, Oklahoma Native journalist, um, Deneen Brown. She is uh, uh, writes for the Washington Post, and um, and her research and her scholarship is the basis of the new film that I mentioned earlier in my conversation with um, Dr. Morrow, uh, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, which is... Um, going to be airing this Friday, June 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and Pacific Time on National Geographic. And um, you'll also be able to watch that on, on Hulu, same day. And uh, it it's a really wonderful film that is um, directed by um, the award-winning director, uh, whom we've had on our show as well, Don Porter. Um, she's the one that wrote... Uh, directed Good Trouble, John Lewis, and um, and also The Way I See It is another one of her uh, remarkable documents. So this was uh, a Zoom interview, and this is the audio from that interview. If you want to watch it, you can go to um, to Facebook uh, at Wanda Sabir and, and watch it. Um, but this is what we did, and so let's see how it sounds. Uh, inside of the interview we have, I played the uh, the trailer for the film. So enjoy. And then we're going to conclude with uh, a, a special broadcast that I did on Tupac Amaru Shakur. Hopefully I've been trying to make it small enough to be able to play it for you. So hopefully it will work out, and I'll be able to do that after this particular interview with uh, Ms. Deneen Brown. And I'm going to um, go live on Facebook. 
I'm working it out presently. <laughs> but this film is definitely a must-see. It's so well done. It's very well done. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that didn't work. Oh, well, that didn't work. Shoot. Um, I'm just running out of time here. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it says live, but, hmm. Okay. Um, I hope this works. <laughs> well, I want to introduce um, the award-winning um, staff writer at the Washington Post, Janine Brown, who has uh, covered night police, education, courts, politics, and culture. She has written about the black middle class, poverty, the homeless, arts, and gentrification. As a foreign correspondent, um, she traveled throughout the Arctic to write about climate change and indigenous populations. That sounds really fascinating. Um, her 2018 piece on the Tulsa mass break restarted the, restarted the search that has gone that had gone dormant. She has won awards from the American Association of Sunday and Feature Editors and the American Society of Newspaper Editors. And she is also a professor at the University of Maryland and Merrill College. Um, what we're here to talk about today is the wonderful film, um, Rise Again. Tulsa and the Red Summer um, with the uh, wonderful director, Don Porter. And what I thought would be really super is to um, to show um, the trailer for the film, which is going to be airing this Friday on National Geographic, June 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's going to be available to stream on Hulu the same day. word that trouble was coming. So I think the killing is coming. Barbaric violence was committed against black people across this country. Kerosene was dropped from an airplane. Why did nobody ever teach us? Because they didn't want you to know. When it was an opportunity to wipe out a community, they took it. I cannot imagine that there are mass graves somewhere in our community and we didn't try to find them. They're buried somewhere, and the question is where? We have encountered human remains. It was like they had found people who had been disappeared by history. The earth had unleashed the truth. We view this as a murder. I'm gonna raise my voice. 
Some people say that city officials orchestrated a cover-up. It wasn't a movie. It wasn't a chapter in a book. It happened to real people. They burned the whole town down. But it will rise again. Welcome again. So I was thinking in, in our, our short time together, um, Janine, could you tell us about why you wanted to um, um sorry, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> You can hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, I heard I heard um I hadn't turned off the um the recording. So I was wondering if you could tell us sort of why um you know, what you what brought you to wanting to to excavate this story. And um and the film is so wonderful in that you take us through this period called Red Summer, um and that was named by James Weldon Johnson and, and it's real timely that his uh 150th birthday is Juneteenth. I didn't even know this one was Juneteenth. And he has a poem about it. I mean, the poetry in the film is just wonderful. Claude McKay, I didn't know that he wrote If We Must Die because of this. I'm like, wow. So anyway, um, yeah, if you could say, sort of talk about why you, you know, started working on this, these stories now, and then maybe talk about your your um, uh, your meeting with uh, with the director and how you both sort of came together to make this wonderful document. Okay. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. I can't, um, I'd like to start the story by saying um, my people are from Oklahoma. I am, uh, I was born in Oklahoma. My great-grandmother lived in Tulsa. My grandmother was born in an all-black town called Boley, which is famous for its Black Rodeo. It's about 60 miles from Tulsa. My father was born in a town not far from Tulsa, and my father um, lives in Tulsa now, so this is where he built his church, and um, not far from what used to be Greenwood. So this story began, my reporting on the story began in 2018 when I was visiting my father, on, uh, and we were having lunch on Black Wall Street, and I noticed, um, I looked around and noticed there were all these signs of gentrification. There was a minor league baseball stadium, you know, a luxury apartment complex and a yoga studio. And I had been writing about gentrification in D.C. for a long time. Um, but while we were having lunch, I knew that this was a site of one of the worst massacres, racial massacres committed against black people in U.S. history, and I thought that was such a contradiction that they were developing on the site of this racial terror massacre. As you know, you know, the 1921 Tulsa race massacre began May 31st, 1921, ended on June 1st, 1921, and as many as 300 black people were killed, and that violence, more than 1,200 homes owned by black people businesses owned by black people were destroyed and um, more than 10,000 black people were left without their homes. So it was really 
a horrific sight. Um, so after that lunch, I flew back to D.C., and I was telling my editor at the Washington Post what I saw, and uh, her name is Linda Robinson, and she said that that's a great story. Um, so the Post sent me back, and I started reporting on the aftermath of this massacre and also raising questions about um, there was a, a report by the Tulsa Race Riot Commission issued in 2001 that recommended that the city excavate at sites of anomalies and also um, pay reparations to massacre survivors and descendants. So my story landed on the front page of the Washington Post in September of 2018. A day later, the mayor of Tulsa was having a community meeting where he was talking about development, plans for development in this area of Greenwood, and a local minister told my story and he said, you wouldn't have this land to develop had there not been a massacre. What are you going to do about it? And it was at that meeting that the mayor of Tulsa announced he would reopen the search for mass graves of black people. So that search is ongoing. In fact, they, they found a mass grave in October 2020, and they just began exhuming bodies. Yeah, yeah. How many, how many um, bodies have they found? How many, how many uh, persons? So far, they've found uh, 28 coffins, mm-hmm. and um, they have descendants of massacre survivors who are carefully um, putting, the, carrying the remains in like boxes that are draped with black, a black cloth, mm-hmm. and they're walking as though they're pallbearers, carrying the boxes from the mass grave across the graveyard to this lab where the remains will be examined for any signs of trauma, such mm-hmm. as bullet fragments or charring or burning that would indicate that they were victims of the massacre. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are any of these um, uh, um, uh, persons remains your family? Uh, I don't know. A lot of people don't know, as you know, Black Americans, um, those who are descendants of enslaved Black people, we don't know that much about our history. So I don't think so. I'm just finding out more and more about my family's history. My my aunt just told me last week that when my grandmother was growing up, she would hear adults talking about the massacre and um, in the kitchen. But um, no, I don't. I don't know that these remains are uh, connected to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in your in your coverage, um, just sort of looking at the um, the events that led up to a Tulsa, or the events that made it possible for a Tulsa to happen, um, uh, you know, in 1919 and 1920. I mean, you have this map in the film of all these cities and one is named Lorraine. What a beautiful name, Lorraine. And I mean, it just like wiped out the whole population. Similarly, in Tulsa, people were rounded up like they were criminals and put in a stadium, sort of reminding me of Hurricane Katrina, put them in a stadium, put them in a football field. Um, 
I mean, it was just like horrific. And they were dropping bombs on the houses. And it sort of reminds me of precursor to move in Philadelphia, dropping bombs on people. And then going in there, the marauders, you know, the white folks going in there, taking all of the valuables because these people were doctors and attorneys and business people, you know, with, with wealth. And then after they took everything, then they burn houses up with children in there. Like, you know, just listening to the testimony that there is testimony, I'm sure it was really great for your research and your reporting. But um, the terrorism, um, yeah, we have a little time. <laughs> just if you could talk about, you know, the terrorism and the silence and the silent thing, all the way to the mayor who would seem to be kind of forced into doing something because he is a mayor of a mayor of a mayor of a mayor. And nobody's talking. Yeah, it's, it's a huge story. So this film, um, it, it deals with Tulsa, but it also, what, what's different about this film from some of the other projects, which are amazing, but in, in this film, Rise Again, Tulsa and Red Summer, we explore the massacres that led up to Tulsa. In the Red Summer, which, as you said, James Weldon Johnson coined this reign of terror, um, which I argue began in 1917 in East St. Louis, um, which had a massacre there where black people were pulled off of streetcars and beaten with clubs and um, sticks and rocks in 1917. And then um, in the summer of 1919, um, you had massacres in um, Omaha, Nebraska. You had Chicago, Washington, D.C. And one of the worst is Elaine, Arkansas, where some historians believe as many as 800 black people were killed by white mobs um, during this reign of terror, which again was called Red Summer. Um, coined Red Summer by James Weldon Johnson. He called it Red Summer to, to describe all the blood that ran in the street. There, was, there were massacres and uh, lynchings in as many as 25 cities that summer. This sets the stage for Tulsa. So in Tulsa, um, on May 31st, uh, white mobs went to the courthouse to demand that the uh, sheriff released uh, a black teenager named Dick Rowland, who had been accused of assaulting a white girl on an elevator, which was a false accusation. Um, black veterans from Greenwood, which was, as you described, one of the most prosperous communities in the country. Uh, it was so prosperous that Booker T. Washington called it Black Wall. I called it Negro Wall Street. We now call it Black Wall Street, but it had luxury shops, it had hotels, it uh, had black people who lived in mansions, there were black people who owned oil wells, it had uh, a savings and loan, it had a black man had six private airplanes. So yes, it was a prosperous, thriving community. So again, on May 31st, 1921, the white mobs go to the courthouse to demand the lynching of Dick Rowland. Black veterans from Greenwood go to the courthouse to defend Dick Rowland. There's a scuffle, a shot goes off, a white man is hit, and all hell breaks loose. 
the white mob descend on Greenwood, and as you described, they began looting, pulling um, valuables out of the, the homes of black people, and then setting their houses on fire. Um, they also shot black people indiscriminately. Those black people would run out of the houses and they would shot. There are witness testimonies of elderly black people who were on their knees praying, who were shot by white mobs. There was a story of a, um, a man who uh, was disabled. His hips were attached to his wheelchair and he used to roll around um, Greenwood selling pencils to make a living. They shot him. And this, the film actually includes uh, footage of, of survivors talking about what they remembered. Um, it shows uh, George Monroe, who at the time was five years old, and he said he recalled um, his mother telling him and his siblings to go hide under the bed as she saw white people coming to her house. And he said he watched as they, they took their valuables, and one of the men stepped on his, his finger, and he started to scream. But George's sister covered his mouth, and he said he watched from under the bed as they lit the curtain curtains on fire and burn the house down. So this was a horrific massacre. Um, just really awful, awful things happened to black people in Tulsa and also in other cities um, during the red summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we're out of time. Um, but you also mentioned um, toward the end of the film, how some family survivors say how their, their loved ones left Tulsa and never returned. And one man who had been trying to rebuild from bricks, you know, his business, um, and just not being able to do that because the insurance companies wouldn't pay on on the um, uh, the policies that had been taken out, you know, by these business and homeowners. Um, he he died a bitter um, man, away from home. So yeah, this is just such a important story. Um, you know, we talk about reparations, you know, we talk about justice, we talk about Black Lives Matter, and this is evidence, you know, like, you you know, you've like pulled it all together with your, your writing and your research in one place, you know, with this wonderful film, you know, that, that um, you know, our sister, um, Don Porter, you know, you all like a fabulous team. I mean, it's just like awesome. Awesome, awesome, awesome work. Congratulations, and thank you so much for the kind of work that you do. Um, you said this is what you do. You tell our stories, and we and I, I thought immediately about it. Um, you know, Ida B. Wells, and and she's in the film too. It's like, oh my God, there she is. And you sort of remind me of like in in her tradition, you know, of black journalists. Oh, Ida B. Wells was incredible. I I can't live up to Ida B. Wells. I'm like, no, Ida B. Wells, but. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the black press told the stories and demanded justice, and I just I'm so happy, you know, to talk to you. And I I I hope the list the listeners and your viewers um, are able to take away something from the film. And you know, it, it's my hope that you know this film can help prompt a national conversation about justice and uh, and, and perhaps end racial oppression and systemic racism. So hopefully, you know, we'll have great conversations. 
as people learn more about this chapter in history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, and because, you know, you're a writer, you know, we've got, um, uh, you know, we've got a study guide because you already wrote it. <laughs> I, I wrote it and I'm going to write more stories, God, God willing, you know, I, mm-hmm. I plan to write as many stories as I can mm-hmm. to just bring these stories to the light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so important. Well, until next time. Thank you. Thank you so, so much, um, uh, Deneen, um, for your work and for this wonderful conversation. You take good care. Thank you. It's great to be here. Bye-bye. Bye. Peace and blessings. So again, um, this, this wonderful um, film, Rise Again, Tulsa and the Red Summer, is uh, premiering on National Geographic this Friday, June 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time um, and Pacific Time, and available to stream on Hulu the same day. And so what what better way to um, to commemorate uh, our Liberation Day, you know, our our day of freedom, because that was the day that everyone knew about the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the Civil War. Not that um, we as African people um, in this hemisphere, as African American people, uh, were able to uh, to take advantage of full citizenship. You know, which is which is obvious. Um, you know, we look at the stories of Red Summer. However, um, it's it's good to um, to think about what uh, it means to be free. And also what it means to be a citizen and what it means, what, what our rights entail. And it gives us, you know, ammunition and fuel for the, uh, for the fight. All righty. So um, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us for this little interview. And, uh, yeah, more to come.
Uh, That was Tupac Amaru Shakur, who was born today, 50 years ago. Happy birthday, Tupac, and uh, Ashe, Ashe to your memory, and um, Ashe to Afeni Shakur, your mom, who is also an ancestor. And we had this really marvelous conversation um, uh, with uh, two scholars, uh, Donna Lisa um and who's at San Francisco State and uh her good friend um Dion Bennett, Dr. Bennett, uh about Tupac and his legacy and his work. And this was um this interview happened oh, I guess uh yeah, last year, September um September eleventh, twenty twenty one. And uh so we're gonna rebroadcast it now. We're closing out with it and Hopefully there will be enough enough uh time left uh in the studio to be able to to uh complete uh this interview. But if not, again, uh it first aired uh September eleventh, twenty twenty and it is quite fascinating and uh yeah, it's it's just a really, really wonderful conversation. Alrighty, so thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks and look forward to uh, a conversation on, on Friday, uh, June 18th. And hope to see you if you're in the Bay at Golden Gate Park, 5 o'clock uh, in the concourse, which is that area right across from the De Young Museum. And it's in the middle between the De Young and the uh, Academy of Sciences. This is Ashaki Jackson reading a proclamation. Our bodies give into the ocean rolling us beneath its tongues. How do we sing our loss with water brimming our throats? Oh, see, you are greedy and transform us. Our faces soft and opening. You do not wash, but strike and shove. You rinse babies from our arms. Leave husbands waiting. We spin in your disregard. You upend this body. We praise your ruin. Our monuments rooting bones and all shores. About this poem, I began writing this piece to commemorate the earthquake and subsequent tsunami at Tohoku, Japan. The Pacific Ocean was turning itself over, and Los Angeles was on tsunami watch for the first time in my memory. Angelinos received emergency alerts to move inland because the water might overwhelm the beaches and the beach cities. In my revisions, I also considered the Atlantic Ocean's role in the Middle Passage, how it provided a last yet violent escape from an enslaved life in the Americas. This poem is a confrontation and memorial. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network and 
That was a poem I got in my mailbox this morning from a Shockey Jackson. I think it's called A Poem a Day, and I just thought, ah, perfect. I think we could start our show off with that. And we are so excited to have Donna Lisa Fisher, um, Dr. Donna Lisa Fisher, uh, also known as the Deaf Professor, um, in the studio with us. Good morning, Donna Lisa. Good morning, Amanda. Thank you. <laughs> and we also have um uh Dion Bennett, um Dr. Bennett, um another anthropologist and I'll read your your bios in full after we get a chance to say hi to each other. So thank you so much both of you for getting up early on this day, this heavy day, 9/11 to talk about Tupac and black women and hip-hop, and maybe the anniversary of Attica, the uh, the uprising at Attica State Prison. Um, there's so much we could talk about. Bea Richards, um, whose centennial is this year. Um, she made her transition on Monday. And then we've got the uh, 16th Street um, bombing and the four little girls that were killed and all the children that were Injured and traumatized. Ah, yeah, this is a really heavy weekend. So thank you for joining us to talk and sort of unpack some of these ideas and feelings that people are probably that are swirling around that maybe they don't have language for. Thank you for having us. <laughs> sure. So, um, Donna Lisa, you introduced me to Dr. Bennett um, yesterday, and um, I was wondering, would you like to introduce her and I could introduce you, or she could introduce you, because you all know each other really well. <laughs> well I, I want to pull up um, Dr. Bennett's amazing bio um, in front of me. I have to say that um, I, I I met Dr. Bennett, um, oh, my goodness, uh, I want to say 20 years ago, and oh, yeah, <laughs> it's like I was like, can I say that? <laughs> and she's had a profound impact on the way that I um, uh, think, write, and engage uh, as a scholar activist. And so I'm so grateful that all three of us can be together this morning. And I, as I, I said yesterday, she's uh, my favorite Tupac Shakur scholar. So um, for me, it's an honor to be. I'm talking with you all this morning. Uh, uh, Donna, can you do that? <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, Donna, at least you're, sound, you're talking kind of low. Can't hear you really well. Um, wow, that's really beautiful to have a 20-year um, relationship, you know, two scholars, you know, and two black women scholars. Uh, you know, that's that's really, really, really wonderful. And um and and I, I wear proudly my, my T-shirt I bought at a conference on belonging at UC Berkeley, CITE, C-I-T-E, Black Women. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that is, that is, the, can you hear me a little bit better now? Is that okay? That's a little better. Yeah, a lot better, actually. Okay. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, 
that that uh, the site Black Women, um, the like the website and the T-shirts are founded by one of our, um, well, a couple of our comrades, including Kristen mm. Smith at the University of Texas Austin. However, and I have to share that Dion Bennett was the first um, uh, a scholar that I that I that I met that that helped operationalize that. Um, I mm. it was in New Orleans. I remember I remember strongly, and. Um, so, and I'm so glad that you're wearing that T-shirt, fellow comrade, and, and so forth. Um, I was trying to pull uh, the, like a uh, uh, the, a formal uh, bio well, I, to read. Well, I can read the bio. I, I can, I've, I've got it. You know, she sent it to us, both of us. You got it? Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I really, you know, those books that you wrote, uh, Dr. Bennett, they just look so interesting. Oh, my goodness. Um and and then your work around literacy in the state of California, which is, you know, nationwide, you know, known, known nationwide. I mean, you just are doing so much, which is really great. Thank critical. you. Thank you. And I want to just go back to the person who introduced us 20 years ago. And, Don, that was at an American Anthropology Association uh, conference. <laughs> um, and the pers- I remember that. Um, the person who introduced us is hip-hop scholar and the founder of the Hip-Hop Archive at Harvard, Dr. Marcelina Morgan. And, um, and we, still, we're, we still work with her. Um, she's still extraordinary. And I think our friendship, Don and my friendship, is a testament to the power of mentorship to mm-hmm. build connections um, beyond the people that you're mentoring, because Dr. Morgan mentors, you know, a lot of people. I met her when I was a grad student uh, at UCLA. She was my, both my thesis and dissertation advisor uh, before she went to Harvard. And I think it's really powerful that through mentoring a group of, uh, of, of at that time we were young, young scholars, um, uh, what she did was she didn't just develop our careers, she developed our relationships with each other, and she helped us to develop community. Um, so never underestimate the power of your mentorship, not just, I think often we talk about mentorship only in terms of, you know, professional advancement. And it's so much, you know, deeper and more powerful than that. We, we both consider Dr. Morgan um, a, a friend uh, and a close friend. And so just really it's, it, our, our friendship is a testament to the power of mentorship to go to take people so many different directions. So I just wanted to shout out to Dr. Morgan and the Hip Hop Archive at Harvard. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, because I see her name in both your bios, and I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. That's right. The relationship, you know, and I didn't That's even know right. that she was still with us. Um, I thought, you know, that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's. that's she's wonderful. not very old. <laughs> of course, she's still with us. She's Chicken, you I know mean, what? And taking names. Right. <laughs> yes. 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 Um, so, uh, and and that is so powerful, um, Dion. Thank you so much for 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 stating that because that is that at this moment, and it, it is it's it, it continues to um, blow my mind. That is that is so powerful. This this, this um, 
making pathways, making ways out of no ways, creating something grand out of nothing. Um, and and uh, like the poem that we heard uh, to an extent when we, when we first logged in, uh, it, there's been these waves. And so here we have Dr. Bennett continuing mentoring uh, uh, multiple cohorts of, um, of scholars continuing this tradition and myself. And Wanda, you do that as well. It is, you know, this is just, this is so powerful. Oh my goodness. Um, should, uh, should I, should I share, should I share Dr. Bennett's bio or? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Uh-huh. <laughs> Dion Bennett holds a PhD in anthropology from the university of California, Los Angeles, where she studied the psychocultural studies studied in the psychocultural studies and medical anthropology program. She graduated magna cum laude, with a BA in anthropology and literature from Yale University. She's, a, she's an assistant professor in the, in the African American Studies Department at the City University of New York, New York City College of Technology. She's an associate director of the Hip Hop Archive and Research Institute at Harvard University Hutchins Center. She was previously the Institute's director of gender studies and social advocacy and has been affiliated with the Institute since its founding in 2002 by Marcelina Morgan, Ph.D. She was previously the director of the African-American Studies Program at the University of Detroit, Mercy. She has been a fellow of Harvard University's W.B. Du Bois Institute for African and African-American Research and the Ford Foundation and the UCLA President's Office. Her book, The Souls of Black Folks, Romantic Love in African-American Culture will be published by the University of North Carolina Press. She has been published in the Du Bois Review and Daedalus with co-author Martha. Oh, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I got it now. With co-author Marcelina Morgan. PhD. She is the author. At, she is the author with photographer Matthew Jordan Smith of Sepia Dreams, a celebration of Black achievement through words and images, and co-editor of Revolutions of the Mind: Cultural Studies in the African Diaspora Project. She has worked in the entertainment industry as a television writer, research and segment producer, and an experience she applies to her research and pedagogy. She, her, re, her research areas include psychocultural anthropology, urban anthropology, African-American and, Af, and African diasporic studies, critical race studies, women and gender studies, media and cultural studies, and hip-hop studies, which engages all of the others. It's, thank you, Dion. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank I have you. to yeah. add on. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, uh, Dr. Bennett, I don't know if you want to introduce um, Donna Lisa, or should I read her bio yes, that I yes, found on the I'll, website I'll, at San Francisco State? I can. I, I will. I will return the favor and read her bio. I think that would be nice. Um, yeah. I'm okay, very proud to know her, and really <laughs> proud of the work that she does. So, um, Donna Lisa Fisher, also known as the Deaf, 
an acronym of her initials, professor, is an associate professor at San Francisco State University where she teaches courses on black popular culture, information technology, and virtual ethnography. Awards of note include Educator of the Year in 2017 from the National Council of Negro Women, Golden Gate Chapter, the Nasir Jones Fellowship, NAS, if people uh, don't recognize the name Nasir, uh, 2016, and the Woodrow Wilson (laughs) National Foundation Career Enhancement Fellowship uh, in 2011, having published on the topics of race in cyberspace, popular culture, and globalization. Uh, Her manuscript uh, reviews blackness, race, gender, and transnationalism in Japanese hip-hop and anime. anime. Um, A founding staff member of Dr. Morgan's uh, Hip-Hop Archive and Research Institute at Harvard University, uh, Fisher uh, is also an associate director. The two of us are both the associate directors of the archive. Um, And the Mm -hmm. archive houses... Her uh, Japanese hip-hop collection, including Nihon Style, a film about an annual hip-hop festival in Japan uh, that she co-produced with filmmaker Bianca White. She has published articles about her research concerning race and gender politics uh, in both global and local hip-hop. At San Francisco State, uh, she co-directed the Bay Area Hip Hop Research and Scholarship Project with the famous uh, David D. Cook which was awarded the Cesar Chavez Institute's Community University Empowerment Grant. And before that, um, Dr. Fisher traveled uh, throughout the world uh, and in the U.S. utilizing hip-hop as part of a social movement strategy and and co-founded the National Hip-Hop Political Convention with Bakari Kachwana and many others in 2002, which uh, has held a, a number of conventions since that time. Um, The academic perspective from which Dr. Fisher writes is unique in that she has had the opportunity to experience hip-hop's heterogeneity uh, as a window to understanding racism and globalization. She has extended family family members that have been professional and renowned artists, and her youth activism was inspired by hip-hop art. She was part of a pioneering group of scholars to write dissertations on subjects that included hip-hop as part of their analytic interests. And for for Fisher, hip-hop is professional uh, personal and political. Um, and I'm so, so proud to know her. Uh, she's very modest about the fact that she is fluent in a number of languages, including uh, Japanese, and is uh, one of the entire world's foremost scholars on uh, Japanese and global hip-hop. So I'm very, very mm-hmm. proud, uh, proud to know her. And she's also a pioneering uh, the work of digital and virtual ethnography, uh, which is really, really uh, important to the future of social science research. So I'm adding, to the, there are things that, that aren't in her bio that I think people should know about her. So I'm throwing a couple of them out there, but um, I'm just really, really honored to know her. Thank you. Mm. Ah, wow, wow. Well, I'm really, really happy to have you both joining us to talk about, ah, Tupac, uh, among other things. So do we want to start there and then make our way through um, the other um, themes and topics that, you know, we talked about off the air in our in our emails? Or we could start wherever you like. Ashe, I'm excited to talk about Oh, go ahead. I'm... Yeah, let's start with Tupac. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 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 <Woo>. <laughs> so 
So he was, um, gosh, Tupac was killed um, uh, when he was 25 um, in 1971. And, uh, or 1996. Yeah. 1996. 1996, yeah. sorry. Yeah, 71 was Attica, right? Sorry, got all yeah. these dates running in my mind. <laughs> yes, and, um, yeah, and the anniversary is the 13th, um, which is, um, this Sunday. And I just thought it was really something that the day that he was killed was on the day of, you know, um, many years later. Um, the day that the um, Attica uprising happened around protesting um, the treatment of, of people who are incarcerated, um, were treated in any old kind of way, as if they weren't human beings. And then what happened mm-hmm. there, that math was really terrible, and what happened to Tupac was equally terrible. And, uh, yeah, people love Tupac, and he's, he really made an impact um, on the young people. And I was reading your review of the play, uh, the musical that did make it here, I just kept on thinking it's got to come to California, and it didn't. I was so disappointed because I didn't catch it. <laughs> um, the, the musical that was based on his poetry from a rose that grew in concrete, and so I just wanted you to talk a little bit about about Tupac and his impact on um, on American culture, but also on world culture. Mm. I, is this for me? Uh, who is, who are you directing wants to, to take it first? <laughs> whoever I, wants okay. to take it first. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll go ahead and start. And um, I think it's just, you know, we've had some time to uh, reflect on uh, on Tupac, and and it's it's amazing to me. I I was. You know, I'm I'm at my brother's uh, house in Oakland visiting, um, and I heard music downstairs earlier this week, and my 15-year-old nephew was listening to Keep Your Head Up. And I just thought that was such a powerful moment. He was like, oh, no, my aunt is dancing. Please stop. But um, <laughs> I was. I was like, hey, this is my jam. Um, but it just struck me because, you know, he knows who Tupac is and he's still uh, listening to him. His music is still um, is still making a mark uh, not only uh, on the, you know, the music industry, but on the consciousness of people um, and uh, and young people. And I think that's part of the power of his voice and his uh, words and his art and also his presence. I don't think, you know, there are very few uh, people in, uh, in world culture who have that kind of uh, charismatic, uh, that magnetic force uh, that he brought. It's one of the reasons he, you know, was a movie star as well as a hip hop artist. So I think that's really important. And I think one of the reasons he's still powerful um, and still so meaningful to people, um, and I often talk about this as an important dynamic of hip hop culture um, in general, but I think he symbolizes it, is I often argue uh, with my students, I teach a class on hip hop culture, and I often 
suggest to my students, they're always open to disagree with anything I say, which is I think their work as intellectuals, but I often argue to them that one of the things that makes hip-hop so powerful, both in the United States and globally, is that it's one of the few cultural spaces in which men of any race, but in this, and, but certainly centralizing here, black men, but any men are allowed to express the full range of their uh, emotional humanity while mm. still retaining the status of their masculinity. And I'm not, I'm, I'm a, you know, I am a avowed black feminist. I am not um, invested personally in you know the the status of, of masculinity. I think it can be quite uh, uh, damaging to uh, people of all genders, including men. But I, I recognize that masculine status is really important to a lot of men. In some cases, for many men, it can feel like the only form of power they have. So to be able to have one's full emotional humanity and maintain the status of one's uh, identity as a man is a really unusual and really powerful um, combination. And I think it's one of the things that draws people uh, to, to hip-hop. I think it's something that draws women to hip-hop, too, um, because I think for black women, we are both masculinized and emotionally dehumanized as well. Um, so so hip-hop is a space in which we can express our full human, emotional humanity and still maintain our power. Um, and I think that's true, you know, across genders, but it's very, very unique uh, and uh, unusual for men to have that kind of a space. And I think one of the reasons hip-hop is that space, I think it, it always was at start, you know, we can go back to early hip-hop and the message and uh, – what uh, what Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were able to do to assert both uh, both masculinity uh, and humanity at the same time, um, but I think Tupac is really uh, the figure who really throws that door open and and creates a a space a a, a massive room for uh, the emotional humanity of men of all races and for black people uh, to live with their power. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons he remains so powerful because he was so masterful at doing that. Um, but I think we're all living in that space. We're all breathing the air that was created from him creating that, that space. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons uh, he uh, he remains uh, remains so powerful. So that's one of the things I think I, I always like to kind of recenter uh, that power of of his art because I think it, it's so important. I don't think we get a J. Cole or a Kendrick Lamar or even you know a Drake being all in his feelings. We don't get that space for that that wave of artists if Tupac doesn't do that foundational work of creating that space um, in the last century. Mm -hmm. Ooh, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, wish, I wish that my snaps could be heard. Maybe they can. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we can hear your snaps, absolutely. yes. And that exactly, exactly as, as what, as, as, as Dion um 
observed and theorized uh, how how Tupac um, remains, you know, he 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 created that foundational space, that legacy that uh, you know uh, that that we do that does help to produce this Kendrick Lamar um, and so forth. And I wanted to go back to something that remains profound for me. Um, listening to Tupac um, all these decades is, is is exactly that that vulnerability. How um, he, his course has been lauded for his um, his his lyric writing um, and how he uh, like uh, brilliantly like authors like Thor Neil Hurston has been able to is able to uh, cr- create uh, text that is complicated how it signifies how there's so much meaning it's it's it, it, there's there's theory there's philosophy and and uh, you know imbued with um that that invokes these emotional reactions and helps uh, and helps the, the listeners do this um simultaneous uh critical analysis um do the you know of the mind and do this um uh, critical emotional work um i guess there's i, I want to reserve some space for um um, us to talk about some of some of the compositions that um, have become the, become these anthems um, for those inside and out, and, and those who don't necessarily claim to um, uh, be within this hip hop framework as a continuation of our of our of our diasporic black uh, arts and political movement. Um, so, but I want to. I was la- listening last night to a song that. Um, uh, always invokes tears, and uh, I was thinking, as like, oh, we can't play this on the radio. <laughs> but it's, so it's one of those songs we don't necessarily hear, like "Keep Your Head Up" um, or "Holler If You Hear Me" or "If My Homies Call" and so forth. Um, uh, and this is this song, if, I, if memory serves, um, it was on an album that was released, after, you know, after his death. And uh, the song is called "16 on Death Row." And the way he writes the song, it's um, you know the the rhythm is, is is it has a tagline, "Dear Mama." So of course we're brought back to his earlier composition called "Dear Mama," right? Um, uh, but the particular song "16 on Death Row," he, he he it's written from the standpoint of being 16 on death row, and he, the 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 narrator. Is 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 sharing the horror of of pr- prison um, dehumanization in prison, all of the violence and abuse, and connecting it to systemic racism um, uh, within and outside of prison walls um, through graphic details of the violence, fear, torture. Uh, uh, that is lending to this experience of dehumanization. And we're being reminded of a couple of things through the narration of the song. One, the, the narrator, um, uh, Tupac, right? But it, 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 Tupac was not 16 on death row when this was written. So the, Tupac, um, the way the narration of the song flows, it's Dear Mama, and then with that voice, with that prophetic voice. Um, and then he starts, and then he, through, through rapping, shares the horrors that, are being experienced and then there's and then you know there's the the that that 
that thesis, that statement, 16 on death row. And to, to really, you know, bring, this is, a, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is a child, this is someone's child that is hearing rape is hearing violence, is, is, is in deep fear, is, is critical of, of the systems that produce the conditions under which this is happening. And it's just such a, such a powerful song. And um, it, oft, it has often um, reminded me of various uprisings inside and outside of prisons. Um, but as we were talking about the anniversary of Attica, and but to bring center back to Tupac, um, you know, that particular song is, I think I wanted to take a moment to describe because it is not necessarily, it can't be played on the radio. I don't know if it was played on the radio out here. It wasn't in St. Louis when I, when I was listening to it. Um, and uh, as I was looking at it again last night, I was like, oh, no, this is a, it's a, and, and, and that's one of the things that I appreciate about, um, uh, I think Tupac is, is a master of, of, of demonstrating hip uh, hop or rapping and, and, and art as story, u- utilizing the uh, ethnographic detail in storytelling to bring forth uh, what is often talked about in, in, in either the news or academe as statistics, but to bring forth this, this first person narrative with um, compelling ethnographic detail that uh, moves moves the listener. And for me personally, this is a song that it's very difficult for me to hear without, you know, crying, getting into that, getting connecting with that, that emotion of, of this collective pain, the, um, the you know, really experiencing um, the, the theory, the critique, the data, and the narrative in a, in a visceral way. It, it just, it, it never ceases, and that song has to have been out for at least 20 years. So mm-hmm. um, I wanted to just add in uh, that personal reflection um, of perhaps lesser-known song. People can look it up, 16 on Death Row by Tupac, and um, to, to, to demonstrate how, he, you know, he laid, uh, as Dr. Bennett pointed out, he laid the foundation work for rappers coming um after him, um, and also for the listeners, um, that he, he remains that 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 important um, symbol that allows people to connect with um, our individual humanity, even amidst so much dehumanization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking. Um, I had a couple of thoughts as you were speaking. I was thinking about um, about how through his art, uh, Tupac. Well, he said that you know he he was going to be coming back, but he he's he's immortal. I mean, literally, he sold more music yeah. deceased than he has because he didn't live long enough. <laughs> than than he was alive. You know, books have been published. People have had sightings. Um, so it's just kind of interesting. Like, is he really gone? And and then you think about, you know, art as, you know, sort of a vehicle where, you know, if you have, if you leave something like, you know, something, a legacy that he's left in his his music and and, and his, you know, his philosophy, because he's got a philosophy, too, that, that people live by, um, you know, thug life, 
Um, I think Sonia Sanchez and maybe Nikki Giovanni both had Thug Life, Thug Life tattooed on themselves. Am I remembering correctly? I can't verify, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. That's right. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, uh, I can't verify, but um, I would. I would. I. I. I, um, I, I would. I, I would. I would say right on, and I think <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think it's really important, and in, in case people who are listening don't know what Thug Life stands for, it is an ac uh, an acronym um, uh, that is often framed as the hate you give little infants, and I won't say the f word, f's everyone, and like that, just that, it's a psychological theory of social distress you know and the consequences of social distress and i think you know it's it's just a really important um theory i think it's really um interesting that just uh this year um uh tupac shakur's sister started uh, a foundation um to address mental uh, um, uh to address mental health uh uh, Sekua Shakur, I hope I'm saying um, I'm saying uh, her name correctly. So it's uh, the Tupac Am- uh, Amara Shakur Foundation, and I know Taraji P. Hinson is involved. But even that state, that statement, Thug Life, even the fact that it's hiding, right? Thug Life, you know, most people think it means that he's glorifying violence and glorifying being a thug. And you know, Tupac is is a master of multiple meanings right so in some ways he is playing with that idea but he's also saying hey you know the people that you're uh identifying as a thug are people who have humanity and who have histories and they are even if they do things that are problematic and hurtful um there's a history um behind that behavior even um the song that that um, that the 16 on Death Row song that Don was mentioning before, you know, I just want to warn people who look at the lyrics, he describes, you know, a very violent uh, sexual act. Uh, and then later in that same song, um, and again, not Tupac, the character, although Tupac had his own problems uh, with being incarcerated for uh, behavior related to sexual violence, um, but the character uh, uh, is, you know, his crime is, appears to be related to a violent sexual act against another another man or another boy. Um, but then later in that song, the character describes uh, being sexually assaulted by a family member, and I think that that there's a there's a a psychological sophistication in both the Thug Life acronym and that song. Um, I love uh, one of his earliest releases was Brenda's Got a Baby. Um, And if you listen to Brenda's Got a Baby, right at the very beginning of the song, he has, you know, a kind of uh, dialectical discourse where, you know, another person says, oh, you know, that's Brenda's problem. And Tupac says, let me explain how this affects the whole community. Um, And so this idea that all of these 
intricate and intimate details of our lives and our, our and our psychological lives have both behavioral consequences for individuals but social cultural and community consequences for everybody else is something that we see recurring throughout his work and it's still a point that you know we as a society across race um, are not getting enough. Um, it's, that's why I think uh, uh, the foundation that um, Tupac's sister is forming to center mental health now in 2020 um, is such a fitting tribute to him because he was centering mental health as related to social justice you know, in the 90s, and we're still, still not where he was in terms of uh, fully recognizing how significant um, that uh, that connection is. So I think it's a really, uh, so even as we talk about thug life, a lot of people don't, don't realize that he's making a critique. Um, and they think, oh, he's just glorifying. I think the kids know, but certainly, you know, some of the older folks uh, don't understand that he's not just glorifying violence. He's t- saying, you know, hey, uh, there's a connection between these narratives of suffering and trauma and childhood and violence and incarceration in adulthood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I remember, um, Donna Lisa, you and I, when we were speaking yesterday, um, you were talking about um, how, you know, there, I think you were at a party, and and then I don't know what happened, uh, but all of a sudden, you know, sort of Tupac was evoked, and, and then um, the mood turned to one of, of grieving and mourning. And, and I was just thinking... Um, because you are a um, a Du Bois scholar, I was just thinking about the souls of black folks and and the passing of the firstborn and 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 then also with Du Bois talking about you know that double consciousness, and I was thinking you know sort of the passing of the firstborn, you know that could be Tupac, Tupac um and and you know his mother, you know they were very close. And um, and she was a phenomenal woman. Oh my goodness! I mean, just a powerhouse. And and she was she had to keep on rising from being crushed by you know some of the, some of the men that were that were in her her life and were she was encountering because she was so powerful. And um, and then what happened to her after she was um you know sort of the genius behind the release of the of the uh, Panther 21 in New York um you know that case that she won <laughs> um and so and I was just wondering if you if either or both of you want to talk about um just sort of um uh sort of Tupac sort of representative of of this this firstborn and 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 you know and how he navigated with regards to um the two-ness because you know he was <clears throat> you know like you say he was really brilliant and uh he was operating on a lot of a lot of levels simultaneously 
and and I'm and I'm sure you know that it made it easier because he was a Gemini and I'm a Gemini and we can do that kind of stuff. But anyway, I want I want to I want to I do want to bring in Du Bois in here, um, but I want to pause for a second one if if possible um, to mm-hmm. note sure. yeah when he when he a, a couple of things when yes when I learned. Um, when so it was 1996, and uh, and, and this part kind of floors me because I'm trying to figure out how we found out so quickly without the digital technologies that have become normative in our days. Because I was in St. Louis um, in a, a, a suite of 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 of, of, of strong black women intellectuals <laughs> in St. Louis. We were in college. We were very happy that we had been, we had been afforded uh, adjacent dorm rooms, shall we say. And that was, um, and it was uh, my, you know, it was my sweet mate and, and, and later sorority sister's uh, birthday. I, th- I think that's why we, I was trying to remember, we, we had we'd gathered for the occasion of her birthday, um, you know, on a, maybe on a school night. <laughs> and, and, and the news, you know, this this celebratory moment, somehow, I don't know if we got a phone call, and it must have been on a landline, that that um, he passed. And, you know, it became a, the, um, the, the gathering became quickly a collective grieving and mourning. And I, and I, I think as, 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 as you and Dion have demonstrated um, brilliantly that, I don't even know that I could process this on that level until even this morning and that um, that perhaps because of Tupac's simultaneous, his, 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 uh, his poetics and his theory to connect with us um, on ways that we may not have been able to process at, say, 19 years old, um, that we, we, we centered with, his passing and um, perhaps our own wounds or, you know, so we, and as well as the wounds of the people. And uh, I did want to make sure to bring in my alpha as to, to connect that to that um, collective grieving, because what I, so that was my, that was my experience, you know, years ago in St. Louis um, and in, uh, in, in, in our black community Um Yet I've seen I've seen this um, I've seen this aspect of, of, of being able to operationalize this, the the the, the um, ideas of my alpha um, subsequently every year you know and wherever I was in the world and 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 particularly here in the Bay Area um, I'm I'm struck by regardless of one's identity but um, uh, one could be Asian American one could be um, Latinx one can be you know African diaspora. And 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 that that almost universal connection with Tupac for multiple reasons. I want to bring in how he also told us how to party, how to go to war, you know, how to fight for ourselves. Mm-hmm. But in addition to dealing with, um, um, uh, uh, you know, breaking silence on 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 violence and 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 also um, therefore advocating for our our mental health and our our healing and with oneself, with our families, um, uh, and so forth. So um, 
I think I may have gotten off, but I, I mean, off that point <laughs> of Du Bois. Um, uh, but I did want to, I did hope to bring in that, that aspect of, uh, to, to, to try to connect since my author is coming up and it's the 25th anniversary coming up in a couple of weeks. I wanted to make sure to bring that in even if later. Uh, and, uh, and, and also to, to note, uh, but, you know, the, the, the solutions oriented, like regardless, not regardless, while, while there, while, while Tupac's courage, his intellectual and creative courage took us to very painful places, um, necessarily, um, that he also articulated hope as as was mentioned earlier uh with beyond um uh bringing up keep your head up um i think my first high school step show was the holler if you hear me <laughs> just was a party jam and also a, and also you know a collective um support jam and more um and i i love if your homies call it wait it's my homies call um anytime i've been organizing or doing some sort of direct action or even you know maybe feeling isolated studying um, or, or research and writing, this idea that if you are feeling isolated or if you are ready to have a mass organization or, trend, or doing civic engagement, this idea, like, your homies will be there. And I know, I understand, if we look at, if, if one were to look at the <laughs> lyrics in a surface way, that maybe uh, one could discern it differently. But that's how I interpreted <laughs> much of his work. So I wanted to bring in that, 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 solutions um and celebratory um and uh, uh aspects of his work as well and i guess the connected to du bois that's something we see du bois doing with many of his works including souls of black folks where he he uh discusses you know actually to bring in double consciousness but um bringing in um the the lyric, the the creative mastery, the um, of, of 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 souls, of of of, of sorrow songs, and, and and explaining how it, the work that the, that the art does, as well as articulating the theory that sets this intellectual legacy, this creative legacy, apart from anything ever seen um, at, at at that moment in this in this geographical space. I may have been too esoteric. <laughs> um, I, I want to I go back to this point of black women and uh, uh, what Dr. Fisher was saying about, you know, the women and the grieving. And, just, and it made me, you know, it reminded me of two narratives of women mm-hmm. responding to the death of Tupac. And one was of my sister who at the time, uh, I believe, was in a senior position at Big Brothers of Greater Los Angeles, if I'm correct, and a somebody a, a, that she worked with, if you can't tell that, you know, I'm black, my name is Dion, we're black. So I'm black, my sister's black, my brother's black, we're all black. Okay, um, so she's black, and um, a white person in her workplace um, said something, you know, one of the reasons we found out 
so fast is because it was it was news. It was really big news. Like everybody understood, you know, in the you know all news forms that this was a big event. His death was a big event because hip hop was so big, um, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, someone, a white person that she worked with said, you know, was kind of dismissive of his death and said, well, live by the sword, die by the sword, you know, to something mm-hmm. really dismissive. And my sister, who I'm always proud of, you know, really challenged them and said, hey, you know, you need to respect what he means to young people and what he means to black people. And one of the things I remember her, because she was really angry at what had happened, and rightfully so, one of the things she said uh, to me that she had said to the white person, she said, you know, in my community, we don't just measure you by what you have done. We measure you by what you can do. Uh, We measure you by your potential um, Mm. and your possibilities. And so when we celebrate Tupac and we mourn him, we don't only uh, mourn all of his wonderful achievements, we mourn the loss of what he could have done and could have been had his life not been cut short. And that always really stayed uh, with me because I feel that we're still grieving that. And the other Mm. story was a black woman I did um, at the time. I think I was doing my dissertation research. I did my dissertation research um, at a black poetry workshop called the Anansi Poetry Workshop uh, in Los Angeles at the world stage there. Um, And we were... We were uh, we were meeting, and there was a woman at the time who would have, was a middle aged black woman, a poet, and you know, and we were we were absolutely mourning, like we were crying, and um, the woman said, you know, I used to hate hip hop. She said, I have a teenage son, and this was back in the days of CDs. She said, if he brought a, a hip hop CD into my house, I would break it and throw it away. Like she was really you know, hmm. really opposed. She wasn't just uncomfortable. She physically destroyed hip-hop CDs, which to me is like sacrilege, but she did. Um, and then she said one night she was out with her girls at the club. She was having a really, really hard time in her life. And Keep Your Head Up came on. And she <laughs> said it really m- spoke to her and moved her. And she hmm. said she had been feeling so alone in her life and to hear that this person that she had met and sadly would never meet understood her pain um, and empathized with it and advocated for her, you know, really was a transformative experience for her in terms of her relationship to art, but also in her relationship to hip-hop and her understanding of why her son loved it so much. Like he kept bringing those CDs home for her to break. Um, so um, I thought I, I'd bring up those two stories because it was like, I just can imagine a woman going around breaking uh, her son's CDs. Um, but, um, but I bring up those two stories because I think, you know, I always come back to this kind of trilogy of Brenda's Got a Baby, Dear Mama, and Keep Your Head Up as these songs that each in their own way are really speaking to black women and not only uh, recognizing the humanity um, and the suffering of black women and empathizing uh, with that, but also advocating for us 
you know, standing with yes. us and by us. And I want to say that doesn't take away from his uh, Tupac sexist lyrics, which he had plenty of them were problematic. Um, it doesn't take away from his, in, you know, his role. And he, you know, claimed that he did not, uh, was not a participant in the sexual assault of a woman, but he said he stood by and didn't stop it. Um, but he was, whatever his involvement was, it was like, you know, deeply, you know, distressing and problematic and he went to jail for it. Um, so I don't want to, we, we have to hold the complexity of him being, you know, saying misogynistic things and, and doing misogynistic things and at the same time being this very rare voice of advocacy and empathy for black women and to, we still don't have enough of those voices of men who advocate for and empathize uh, with any women, any men in a, uh, doing that with any women and, sir, uh, and any men doing that with, with black women. So I think it's really important. And just to swing back around to double consciousness and just, again, for people who aren't uh, familiar, who, you know, read it, you know, 40 years ago, um, a, a Du Bois describes double consciousness, and I'm quoting, looking at oneself through the eyes of another. Uh, end quote, and that idea and specifically really looking at, uh, he's referring to black people looking at ourselves through the eyes of white people. And one of the reasons we still discuss Du Bois, he's one of the first readings of all, every class I teach, um, is because that concept of double consciousness is still, you know, part of what we're battling and negotiating. If you get a chance to read Souls of Black Folk, it's online, later in that same chapter, he talks or he writes about the importance of self-recognition and self-respect. And I think that uh, hip-hop in general and Tupac in, in particular actually represent in some ways uh, a rejection of double consciousness and a movement towards the work of self-recognition and self-respect where, where white people get decentered. They, you know, they're, they're there, but they do not define um, who we are to ourselves and to each other. And I think he created a model of black mutual recognition. Um, there's a, uh, uh, a term that's often used in Southern Africa and it's becoming more global called Ubuntu, uh, which roughly uh, uh, translates in, uh, I, I believe it's in Zulu, to I am because we are. Um, and that kind of Ubuntuistic sensibility um, that Tupac kind of, you know, embodied and, you know, poetically wrote about is in some ways a journey beyond double consciousness. And Du Bois is very clear that he wants black people to move away from double consciousness and towards self-aware consciousness, self-recognition, self-respect. And I feel that Tupac embodied uh, both as a person, as an, as an artist, that particular movement. Mm. Yeah, wow. yeah, that is so true. Yeah, that wow. Yeah, that is so true. And then thinking about Ubuntu is, you know, I see myself in you, and and so mm. you know, looking at the wellness of the community, if one of us is not well, that means that none of us are well. So we have to 
do things so that if someone is not well that we make the person feel better so then we can mm-hmm. all be well together. But I like the idea of, you know, decentering, um, you know, these others, you know, like not putting whiteness at the center of our lives because mm-hmm. it's not, mm-hmm. you know, we are the center of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's really great. Yeah, I like that. And and I was also thinking, you know, sort of uh, around the boys, how, you know, he was uh, at least publicly and in the media so against uh, Marcus Garvey, the Honorable Marcus Mosiah Garvey. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is the centennial year um, this past, this last month of the the huge convention of African peoples throughout the diaspora in New York. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. That's where the Constitution was, was ratified and drafted, where Marcus Garvey was uh, nominated and elected the provisional um, president of the United States of Africa. You know, that's where the song was um was was saying and the flag and um and just thinking about how the boys and Garvey were both, you know, uh, honored and and, you know, sort of held in high esteem by President Nkrumah <laughs> and and um and the boys ended up leaving this country and and re you know, and settling in Ghana. Uh, West Africa, and so I would see sort of like him, him coming full circle. You know, if if Garvey would have lived as long, you know, they they could have actually maybe changed the way that the the West, you know, had projected them. You know, as so far as the perception of them being at odds with one another, as opposed to um, having similar goals for our people. But I wanted to ask you also um, to talk a little bit about. The, the whole thing around grief and the firstborn, and um, yeah, because when you know how Du Bois writes about you know his law, his first how he was a, you know he was a he wasn't a father, and so when he got a son, he sort of had a child. He became another person because of that relationship. He grew into something that he couldn't have grown into outside of having a child. I don't have children, so <laughs> I I like to think that those of us who don't have children are still capable of growth and change and love even without uh, children. I'm a very, very proud auntie. No, we got to get excluded from the parents' club as if we can't somehow grow because we haven't had children. Um, uh, so uh, I'm in the I'm in the I'm in the proud aunties club. So I will not speak to the parenting. Uh, uh, role since I don't occupy that role. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and and there, <laughs> there's this um, there's this um, thinking about the, I'm gonna try, I'm trying to figure out how to say this succinctly. The um, the the three of us as, as educators, as people engaged in our deeply rooted in our communities, making these commitments, we are um, we are engaging you know that fictive kinship and that we are we are we are engaging that um that 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 role of participating in the growth and development of others as educators as family members as aunties as um 
Uh, and uh, you know, one of, one of, uh, there's a, a book by Lisa Del Pitt entitled "Other People's Children," and it's on it's on educational <laughs> philosophy and then pedagogy. And I keep, I often think, you know, that's we are. We are, you know, we are. We have we have the honor of, of working with other people's children, and uh, and uh, and and those who are educating um, our children are working with other people's children. Um, I, um, I I am a parent, and of an amazing you, child, <laughs> who better be up and logs into his remote school right now. <laughs> but, uh, but um. Uh, <laughs> I really want to go back and center on that text right now. Like when we get off the, like when we get, when we, I really want to revisit that because this, I'm thinking about um, Du Bois's theory in regard to that and his, and his descriptions. And I'm, I'm moved at it in a way that I don't know that I've been moved before, but the, the way you, you just explicated it, I have to say yes. Uh, to, to have a part of yourself, um, metaphorically, I mean, uh, to, to, to emerge, I, I, oh gosh, could, uh, Wanda, could you tell me again, like what you said, the, 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 could you restate the, the, the words again? I, there's something I wanted to say about that. Uh, was the passing of the firstborn? Or? Yes. And, <clears throat> yeah, when you Yeah, and I, I just thought about, you know, Tupac. You know, that, you know, we're talking about how, you know, there was so much grief around his passing. I mean, he didn't go without a whisper. I mean, he didn't, Mm -hmm. he he went, when when he was no longer in this particular realm, it was noticed when he he made his transition. Perhaps because of the suddenness of it and how it was, it was, it was, you know, it was violent. I mean, we haven't talked about the violence. You know, it was violent. We talked about the trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But there's trauma because there's violence. You know, there's there's trauma because, <clears throat> you know, black bodies don't have space to grow and be safe and to thrive. They have to, they have they can carve space out, but in any any time, you know, it can be invaded or it can be taken away. Or we can be said, "Oh, you don't belong there." <clears throat> so the whole idea of you know of having, you know, this 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 firstborn no longer here, you know, um, Du Bois talks about just his heart. He's just so grieving. I mean, he has a daughter, um, I think, later on, but that space that his son occupied, that firstborn, you know, you know, people talk about how. You know, you have another child, and that child will fill that space. Like, no, not really. People don't fill spaces. No. Somebody's gone; they're gone, right. right? That's why, you know, in African traditions, um, you know, if you have another child, that child lives for that child that preceded him or her until that child spiritually tells their sibling, "I'm good. You've done everything I wanted to do. If I had lived, now you can just have your own life. You don't have to live my life too." I think that's so beautiful. Um, you know, when when a sibling will do that for his departed sibling, sibling. And I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about how um, 
how the voice is speaking to you know this there's there's this personalized reflection and then also bringing it to a theory of for for people and that um whether one is that a biological you know a parent or 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 parenting or what we say we say in anthropology uh fictive kin um you know doing that 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 work there's a part of ourselves that's out there in the world in a world that is has declared war on this vulnerable human spirit and that that is a pain that is a, that is that is that is that is that that is immense fear to I'm thinking about the conditions and the, the time 100 years ago uh, that Du Bois was talking. Um, and when we think about all of the violence, all of the, the structures, um, all of the precarity, I, I, I don't know that I have the words to describe the, uh, the, the context briefly right now. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm connecting with that fear, and that's something that we are – are 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 still experiencing um in that it, regardless of 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 education location uh network access to perceived um support and power and and, and spiritual strength at any moment the state white supremacy there's a number of different factors that can enact um, pain um, and, and 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 violence on on one's on one's child, um, and then there's also obviously I'm not talking about the the then and there's also these other factors that stop our children before they're born or at birth that is 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 much described and. I, I, as I'm seeing that as good, um, but not able to really talk about it. I don't know. I, I, think, I think it, it ties it ties into the Black Lives Matter movement in a lot yes. of ways. It's funny. I was just talking to my students yesterday. You know, they're very interested in Black Lives Matter, and one of them was mentioning that um, Trayvon Martin's mother is uh is running for office and you have you know one of the the mm-hmm. mothers of the movement is already a congress uh, congresswoman and you know one of the reasons the mothers the mothers of the movement are so powerful is because they um they represent our you know collective fear uh for our children our fear that they will be murdered like we're not just a afraid, oh, something bad could happen. It's like, no, we are afraid that our children will be murdered. And I say are because, you know, I consider my students my babies. Uh, I don't tell them that, but that's how I feel. <laughs> like, oh, I'm looking out for you. Um, like, our children will be murdered um, by the state. Um, and so I think it's really, you know, I think that fear, you know, throughout the book, um, so it's a black folk, including that chapter. I mean, even that chapter is an allegory in which uh, the firstborn son are the collective black dead. 
right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's his son, but it's an allegory for the entire black community. And he even describes this idea of the son is free, that where the survivors are still enslaved, but the, the son is, um, is free. And I realized we didn't, you know, just to bring it back to um, also the Attica uprising, you know, I just want to remind folks that the Attica uprising came from incarcerated people um, in 71 protesting uh, the dehumanization that they were experiencing. Um, and, you know, when all the shots were fired and, you know, both incarcerated people and guards were dead, it was outside state actors who in all likelihood, uh, you know, were responsible for most of the deaths, including the deaths yes. of the guards. And, you know, I think even that story makes me think of what's happening now with the Black Lives Matter protests, where you have these protests, we have the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, but white people are starting to die, right? White people are starting uh, to be, you know, assaulted uh, um, and killed either uh, by uh, representatives of the state and the former police or people who, you know, vigilantes who, who fancy themselves, you know, representatives of, you know, whatever white supremacist state fantasy that their, you know, evil world that they are living in. Um, and so I think that that idea of um, we are all the firstborn sons, we are all the firstborn daughters, we are all vulnerable, um, we are all at risk, we are all one misstep, you know, one confused moment. You know, you know, think of, you know, Brianna Taylor, one, you know, wrong boyfriend, you know, uh, away from a massacre. Um, and I think that's kind of the idea of, you know, to me, you know, I read it, uh, that piece, as what would it look like if we, you know, all treasured each other and valued each other as if we all were the firstborn son. So I'm a thirdborn daughter. I have, a, you know, an older brother who's the, who's the, who is the firstborn son who I adore, you know. And I think, you know, I used to complain to my parents, I'm like, look at all these beautiful pictures of, of him and you know here's a crazy picture of me you know <laughs> like clearly pooping like why don't I have these beautiful beautifully lit baby pictures my brother was this gorgeous baby you know and there are these beautiful pictures of him being gorgeous you know um but what if everybody was treated like the firstborn son um what if we all treated each other as if we were all sacred and special and the beginning of uh, new, uh, you know, new possibilities, if we were all treated as if we were carrying forth an important legacy and building on that legacy. So that, to me, is the message of that Du Bois chapter, and it's also that, that you know, the message of Tupac, the reason young people still love him, um, um, there are lots of reasons, but one of them is that he said clearly to them in his lyrics, you are special and sacred and mm -hmm. your emotional humanity is important. He, not always, but in many contexts, treated young black people as, you know, the 
the the special child um, yes. that should be honored and and celebrated and protected. And you know, we still feel that that love from him through his art. And so that's how I kind of see that connection. We are all the firstborn and sacred and special child. Wow, that's really, really beautifully said. Um, yeah, yeah, and really encourage people to to read it too. It's it's really, really a beautiful chapter in in the book. I was wondering, um, we're we're a little over, but if you all have time, I have time. I wanted to know if um, we wanted to um, uh, maybe bring in James Baldwin, and uh, and then maybe talk a little bit about some other important issues that are happening presently that people should be aware of, like registering to vote and voting and completing the 2020 census if they have not done so. And, and what aspect? James Baldwin is a big subject. What aspect of James Baldwin were you thinking oh, about? I'm thinking about? Oh, I'm thinking about um, the, uh, the fire next time. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, Tupac mm. and some of his, his work that was like, it was almost like a a response, like if he and Baldwin were talking, um, he he definitely agreed with him. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, in 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 the work, you know, I'm thinking, you know, that um, and and you all are more of an expert in in his lyrical content than I am, but um, yeah, I was just thinking about that conversation because one could think, I mean, literally in California right now in the Bay Area. You could think that this is the apocalypse. You know, the sky mm-hmm. is orange. We can't. Yeah. I mean, two days ago, it never. It was never morning. We woke up yeah. and it was looking like the afternoon, and then when the afternoon came, it looked like evening. <laughs> Today is a little sunnier. the The air is. You can't breathe it. It's really, really, really bad <laughs> because of the particles. You know. Um, yeah, it's like, whoa. And I just think to myself, I feel so blessed that I have a place inside, and, and but everyone doesn't have a place inside. Some people are out there in this. All the yeah. time. Horrible. Not to I'm, mention all the people that are losing their homes, you know, that and the people that are dying, you know, in these fires. Well, and, yes, and... Um, I'm trying to, I just grabbed my son right now is reading the fire next time with my mother who's mm-hmm. oh, remote. Really? She's in a different state. Yes. So, oh, um, I love no, that I, book. Do, oh, wow. And, <laughs> and I think I do have to go to office hours in a minute, but I'm hoping we can maybe, mm-hmm. maybe we can do a part two. There is, just, oh, yeah, I'm trying super. to pull out all these quotes. Like um, there's something that, um, well, I I came to this one maybe. He says, let me see. Um one can let me think um i'm looking at that this 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 part where baldwin says to his nephew in um i don't know the letter uh the, my dungeon shook letter to my nephew yeah. on the 100th anniversary of emancipation there's a part um where he says you know but remember most of mankind is not all of mankind and um what is he getting at? He's 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 you know he's articulating uh, destruction and uh, and 
and it, but, uh, the, the, the lack of innocence um, or even those who, who claim to be innocent are, are, are complicit in the crime, um, these crimes against humanity, these crimes against um, black people. And uh, he, he um, you know, uh, oh goodness, we do need to have this. <laughs> um, but I, I, I really appreciated, um, you know, uh, Goodness. Um, well, here's another quote. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. I, you know, mm. I, there, there's mm. there's much here. Um, I think when my son first started reading uh, this work, um, I did actually uh, utilize hip hop artists um, to mm. to to you know um, help pique his interest. Um, uh, and 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 he's continued with that metaphor when he talks, you know, about it. When we talk about it, he talks about um, um, Baldwin's flow, Baldwin's philosophy. Um, uh, situates him some, somewhat within Afro pessimism, <laughs> and uh, and, um, and 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 this strength that, and I and I see I, I see hope I see hope there. Um, I'm trying to bring this to, 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 to Tupac because, well, my son. Oh, sorry. Please, 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 please. Yeah, oh, I just in. wanted to um, I just in, in that this set, the, the rest of that piece is, and I'm just going to read it. Um, the, when he says, if, if you woke up and all these things had changed, and I'm just quoting, and I just want to put, point out, letter to my nephew, James Baldwin yes. did not have children. <laughs> Still <Yes>. extraordinary. <laughs> you don't have to be a, kid, a parent yes. to grow. Yes, he was. Um, but um, <laughs> so he writes a letter to his nephew who he loves. Um, he says, any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. Well, the black man mm-hmm. is functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar, and as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's so prophetic. So that's Letter to My Nephew. It's available online. Um, uh, that's an excerpt from it. But I think it's prophetic. Like the Black Lives Matter movement right now is uh, a representative of black people moving out of the designated place of the whipping post and, you know, shooting target. Um, for white people and, you know, it's making, you know, people feel that, you know, power is shifting and they are correct. Power is shifting. And I do, and I, you know, as, as we kind of close out, I do want to kind of recenter uh, the, uh, the elections and uh, the census um, that, you know, it's so important. We're all, um, here in the Bay, I live in New York, but I'm in the Bay Area right now. And yes, it did. It looked like we were we were on Mars. I was so confused. Mm-hmm. I was like, Oh my gosh, is this really happening? Um, yeah. But uh, but certainly this the what, one of the reasons it looked like that. One of the reasons, you know, the you know California is on fire right now is because unaddressed climate change problems. You know, so these are things that are important. Um, you know, the census affects how many resources are distributed to all um, 
communities. It's one of the reasons that the current administration has been fighting so hard to prevent people from completing it because they want to prevent people from getting both the economic resources they need and the electoral, the political resources they need. And so uh, one of the things I try to remind people is that many of these things that people kind of try to talk about, um, Black Lives Matter and the, pro- the protest movement, as if it has nothing to do with the election, as if, you know, what, the election is just about white people? And it's like, no, whether we like it or not, Elections have consequences for black people. Elections will have consequences for how policing is done. Elections will have consequences for how mass incarceration proceeds. Um, one of the things that will wake up, whether no matter who's president, um, in January, we are going to be dealing with the consequences of all of these judges that the Trump administration put into place for another generation. And we will be paying we will be paying a high price. Many of these judges are racist judges. We will be suffering because of elections. So I think it's really important, especially now when we're less than two months out for the, from the election, to really challenge this idea that ele- elections don't affect us or that there are no consequences or that the consequences are for white people somewhere else and not for black people in our house. Elections have consequences for black people in our homes, if we are lucky enough to have homes. Um, They will have consequences for black people who do not have homes. Um, So they have consequences for everybody. And and one of the ways, if if we want to shake the foundations so that we can build a better one, um, one of the ways, not the only way, it's just one. We have to use all of our tools. But one of the tools is filling out the census, and another tool is um, is our vote because our vote says uh, you can't ignore us, you can't silence us, and you are accountable to us. And I don't think we can say that enough, but we can't say that with the force that we need if we don't use the votes that we have, especially if uh, we are in a state where um, – formerly incarcerated people can vote. Um, so I think it's just really important to never let elections, never let, let elections get whitened in a way that makes us throw away our power um, because we can't afford to throw away uh, any of our power and we can't afford to throw away a single vote. Mm-hmm. Heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Considering you know our history and our ancestors that they gave their lives so that we could be educated and so that we could participate in this democracy, even though it's not perfect, we still need to participate because we need to be functioning on multiple levels. You know, we and work, also we work the system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, uh, Also, Mm -hmm. it's important, as you were saying this, I just felt compelled to say, you know, we need to stop Mm -hmm. acting like white people built this democracy and, you know, we were just off, you know, picking cotton somewhere. No. (laughs) You know, first of Mm -hmm. all, it was honorable, you know, enslaved labor was both, it was obscene, but we did the work honorably while preserving our lives and the lives of our families. So I'm not dismissing uh, that labor, but African-Americans 
uh, our founding mothers and fathers of our country and our democracy. Enslaved people were nation builders. Certainly free people and people who are able to, uh, to become free were certainly in whose names we know. But all of that labor that was done by enslaved people was nation-building labor. The abolitionist movement was a democracy-building movement. Women's suffrage, and, you know, this year we're, we're celebrating um, the 100th anniversary of the women's vote, which many people forget black women were actively mm-hmm. involved in the women's suffrage movement. Many people forget that Du Bois and Doug, Frederick Douglass supported women's suffrage when most white men did not. Um, we built this country. We built this democracy. So when we fight to preserve democratic values and institution, we're not fighting to, to maintain something that white people built and that we aren't a part of. We are fighting to honor the labor, including the enslaved labor of our ancestors. And I think it's so important for us to totally reclaim that narrative of nation building and democracy building because it is ours. Mm-hmm. And, we need, yeah. and, and if, when we don't vote, we dishonor it. And we mm-hmm. dishonor Certainly. our ancestors. Right. I totally agree. I um, have been um, hosting a car caravan around Lake Merritt on the first and third Fridays. Uh, uh, we start at Our Lady of Lords Church. And um, and so it's been really working out well because the last um, time we went around, the first Friday was the um, Labor Day weekend holiday uh, weekend. So I put on my window, um, "Black Labor Built This Country." <laughs> Amen. Yeah. And yeah, and 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 the signs they kind of stay in my car. I just I have them on all the windows when I'm going around the lake, and then I take off the ones that are kind of blocking my view, and just have the two in the back um, for the rest of the month or until the next two weeks. So, yeah, yeah, definitely um, we need, people need to realize that, you know, we we have a central role in the development of this nation. If we hadn't been here, Western culture, not to mention the United States, would not be what it is because we built it, all of it. Yep. Every last mm-hmm. bit of it. And I'm so happy that, you know, the reparations bill passed in California. All we need, the governor just needs to sign it. And the one that's um, uh, in the federal government, I don't know where it is, but hopefully it'll get signed soon. So we can start figuring out how we're going to get compensated for what our ancestors did. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. And thank you for bringing up the caravan as well and Thank you, Dion, for for centering it. What's up with the fire this time? (laughs) Yes, the new fire. Thank you. Thank you so much for including me, both of you, in this uh, in this conversation and uh, in this work. The important work that you're doing, Wanda. It's a wonderful, um, wonderful platform that you have created, and I'm so grateful and honored. Uh, that you uh, that you allowed me to uh, to join you today. Oh, thank you both thank so you. much for for joining us. I was wondering, do you all want to um, you know leave with a favorite song, quote, something? Um, I'm gonna play. Yeah. Um, I uploaded if my homie calls um, for you, uh, uh, Donna Lisa. 
And I, and I upload it. <laughs> Keep your head up for you, uh, Dr. Ben. <laughs> so when you're gone, I'm going to be playing those songs for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Um, it, is, it, is tru- it is a truly, it's, it's such an honor. As a, Dion, Dr. Dion Bennett is, as you, as you, as you all could hear, is, so, is my, my favorite Tupac. Shakur scholar, and so much more. Thank you for breaking it down. I mean, really reciting these passages from these books, teaching um, our folks, and and doing the direct action. You too, Wanda Sapir, um, d- um, creating the art, teaching our folks, doing the direct action. Um, I do look forward to a part two, and I can't wait to hear it. That is, I was about to say, keep your head up for Dion, <laughs> and and that is my song for homies call. <laughs> that is that is my song, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I, so I think we're gonna just, play just for yeah, just mm-hmm. from Brenda's got a baby. The part that I referenced was uh, someone mm-hmm. says, you know, uh, that's not our problem. That's up to Brenda's family, and Tupac says. Um, well, let me show you how it affects the whole community. Um, mm. And I think that's important. Let, be aware of how uh, everything that we do and experience uh, affects the whole community, and that community is worth, worth uh, saving and defending and growing. Mm. Mm. Yes. <laughs> nice. Well, thank you both so much. And so we're going to... I'm going to start with uh, Keep Your Head Up, and we're going to close out with If My Homie Calls. So thank you both so much, and we'll thank definitely um, be in touch so we can have another conversation soon. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you very much for your work. Oh, you're quite thank welcome. You. And I'm looking forward to reading your books. And, and Donna Lisa, yeah, finding out more about your scholarship. Wow. This has been really <laughs> fabulous. <laughs> all right, y'all. I'm going to see y'all at the caravan and uh, at my office. <laughs> all right. Okay, cool. All right. Yeah, right. 12 to 1. Peace and blessings, both of yes. you. <laughs> all right. You Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye. Uh, you're welcome. Bye.
no name. It was plain that your aim was more cane. You got fame, now you reign with no shame. I told Rock Shot to make that. In fact, I tried with a map with Rock to spray tap. But now I don't want to down my own. No matter how slow you go, you're not low. And I hear that to make a few enemies. But when you need a friend, you can depend on me. Call. If you need my assistance, there'll be no resistance. I'll be there in an instant. Who am I to judge another brother? Only on the cover. I'll be no different than the others. A to the O to the M to the I to the E. I'm down to the E and D. Cause it's a fall in no time at all. I'm down for y'all. When my homies call. What? It's my homies call. I've ever heard that one before, and it was really, really wonderful speaking to um, the two scholars this morning, Donna Lisa Fisher, um, also known as Def T- DEF Professor uh, at San Francisco State, and Dr. Dion Bennett, uh, Professor of uh, where is she? A professor, this is Professor in the African American Studies Department at. City University of New York, um, New York City College of Technology. Ah, oh, wow! What a what a wonderful wonderful conversation uh, about our dear brother Tupac Amaru Shakur and what he represents and what he represented uh, to all of us. And so I'm going to close out this set with the rose that grew from concrete. 
um, which is uh, features a lot of great folks, and uh, Nikki Giovanni is one of the folks that sort of pulled this together, and she's in it as well. And I played it before because I really like it, and I might have to play something else because I'm trying to pull up um, uh, Bea Richards um, reciting her piece, A Black Woman Speaks, and uh, and so anyway, um, it's going to take a minute for me to do that. <laughs> so I might have to play some other music in the meantime, but first we're going to start with The Rose That Grew From Concrete. Try to plant something in the concrete, you know what I mean? If it grow and the, and the rose petal got all kind of scratches and marks, you're not going to say, damn, look at all the scratches and marks on the rose that grew from the concrete. You're going to be like, damn, a rose grew from the concrete? Same thing with me, you know what I mean? I grew out of all this instead of saying, damn, he did this, he did this. It's like, damn, he grew out of that. He came out of that. That's what they should be, you know what I mean? All the time, When you're down 
your grandmothers and grandpas tell recognize that voice that is our sister Nana Sula Spirit out of New Orleans and uh Mongu Ni Mueza and um yeah you need some healing call on Yemanja and there is a action happening tomorrow and let me look it up so I can make sure I have it correct uh with regards to um the um uh there is um let me see, I think Charlie sent it to me. There is uh a protest tomorrow not tomorrow, excuse me, Sunday, the thirteenth. Um on September thirteenth, um the largest prison uprising in US history, which was begun on September ninth, nineteen seventy one, at Attica Prison was brutally suppressed. Thirty three prisoners and ten of correctional officers were killed in the assault by New York State Police ordered by Governor Rockefeller. An important catalyst for the Attica uprising was George Jackson's assassination by prison guards, which happened at San Quentin three weeks before on August 21st. 
Um, and there is a webinar that we missed <laughs> um, on uh, September 8th. Anyway, on September, on Sunday, September 13th at 5.30 p.m., um, there is going to be a demonstration and visual at San Quentin State Prison linked to the 1971 state murders at San Quentin and Attica with the criminal negligence that has led to 26 deaths at San Quentin during the COVID pandemic, including 12 death row prisoners. Um, there is a Facebook um, event that you can look at there, and let me find it for you and see what it says. Um, yeah, the contact people. Let's see, 530 to 845, Rise in Power, Recognizing Resistance from San Quentin to Attica and back again, 1971 to 2020. And let me see. Uh, um, meet at the Larkspur Ferry Terminal at 530 p.m., Walk to Westgate of San Quentin at 6 p.m. So it's going to be a march. And, um, yeah, so it's not in your car. It's actually a physical march. And um, uh, it's being hosted by No Justice Under Capitalism and California Coalition for Women Prisoners and three other organizers, but they're not showing here. Um, Yeah. So let me go back where we were. I was reading to you. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, um, the uh, the protesters will honor all the incarcerated lives lost across California and the United States due to the state's ruthless disregard for black, brown, indigenous, and all incarcerated people. Uh, those assembled will call on Governor Newsom, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, and all state officials to immediately implement a policy of mass release in order to stop the needless deaths. Sadly, the demands made by incarcerated people in the 1970s remain fundamentally the same in 2020. Forty-nine long years later, recognize the dignity and human rights of all people in prison. That is the demand. The organizers also demand that the California Department of Correction and Rehabilitation and Governor Gavin Newsom grant mass releases and rehousing now in order to save the lives of the human beings inside. And there's another, it's a whole list of demands, and I will post this on wandaspicks.com. And uh, let me see how many demands are there. Oh, there are only, um, they're not that many demands. Let me read them to you. So the first one is stop the transfer between prisons and to ICE detention centers to provide COVID-19 testing to 100% of the population and prison staff. Three, limit exposed staff from working in areas with no known positive cases. Four, provide nourishing and hot meals daily. Five, ensure that there is no or minimal lapse in medications for those who need them, including hormones for trans people. Six, expand credit earning opportunities. Seven, provide free hygiene supplies and regularly disinfect all common areas. Eight, provide free tele-visiting privileges and stamps. And nine, expand free phone calls. Yeah, the prisons were um, providing free phone calls, but it stopped. During the wildfire season, we demand that CDCR 
One, monitor the fire situation surrounding prisons, be in communication with local fire officials, and have a plan to transport prisoners by the time mandatory evacuation comes into effect. Two, have contingency plans and multiple possible evacuation points based on the extent of fire. That is, don't plan to evacuate people to a site that might itself be facing a fire. Evacuate the sites in areas with virtually no fire risk. Eight, excuse me, three. Evacuate people with serious medical conditions and or disability with necessary medical and assistive technology devices. Four, provide up-to-the-minute updates that families and loved ones can readily find on the Internet. This should include information about what measures the prison is taking, when evacuation plans have been activated, and where people are being taken to. Five, pay incarcerated firefighters union-scale wages and grant formerly incarcerated people the right to be hired despite felony convictions. So, um, yeah, so that those are the demands. And uh, and like I said, I'll, I'll post it. But again, on September 13th, um, this Sunday at 5.30, there's going to be a demonstration and vigil at San Quentin State Prison. And um, folks are meeting, asked to meet at the... Um, at the ferry landing at Larkspur. Uh, let me let me give that to you again. Um, at the uh, just a second. Uh, meet at the Larkspur ferry terminal at 101 East Sir Francis Drake Boulevard at 5:30, and then people are going to walk up to the West Gate at 6 p.m. and there's going to be a demonstration and a vigil. So, so that's that. And now I'm going to play Bea Richards, A Black Woman Speaks. Uh, and this is Bea Richards, uh, activist, phenomenal, phenomenal woman. Um, yeah, activist, poet, playwright, teacher, uh, director, movie star. Uh, she's going to recite, she's reciting um, her wonderful work. A Black Woman Speaks, and her birthday was July, was it July 12th, I think, um, this year? I know it was July. I'm just doing this from memory. Let me see, July 12th, I think. Um, let me see. Uh, Dia Richards. Yeah, I am such, am such a fan of Dia Richards' work. Uh, yeah, July 12th, she was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and she had to get out of there so that she didn't end up getting killed. So she she came to California and didn't have any, she know anyone here and just made a wonderful life for herself and um, lived to be 80 and returned home and passed away there, um, sold her house. And you can watch this really wonderful film, Bia, a black woman, uh, speaks by uh, Lisa Gay. Um, Lisa Gay, I'm trying, I think Lisa Gay Hamilton, but um, <laughs> let me just make sure. Yeah, Lisa Gay Hamilton, who who played um, uh, she played Seth in uh, in Beloved, um, the uh, Toni Morrison. Uh, book made into a film. 
So anyway, here is Bia, a black woman speaks. Peace and blessings, everyone. It is right that I, a woman black, should speak of white womanhood. My husband's, my father's, my brother's, my son's die for it because of it and their blood chilled in electric chairs stopped by hangman's noose cooked by lynch mob fire spilled by white supremacists mad desire to kill for profit gives me that right I would that I could speak of white womanhood as it will and should be when it stands tall in full equality but then womanhood will be womanhood void of color and of class and all necessity for my speaking thus will be passed gladly passed but now since it is deemed a thing apart supreme I must in searching honesty report how it seems to me white womanhood stands in blooded skirt and in slavery reaching out adulterous hands killing mine and crushing me what then is this superior thing that in order to be sustained must needs feed upon my flesh how came this horror to be let's look to history they said the white supremacists said that you were better than me that your fair brow should never know the sweat of slavery they lied white womanhood too is enslaved the difference is degree they brought me here in chains they brought you here willing slaves to man you shiploads of women each filled with hope that she might win with ruby lip and saucy curl and bright and flashing eye him to wife who had the largest tender remember and they sold you here even as they sold me my sisters there is no room for mockery if they counted my teeth they did appraise your thigh sold you to the highest bidder the same as I and you did not fight for your right to choose whom you would wed but for whatever bartered price that was the legal tender you were sold to a stranger's bed in a stranger land remember 
and you did not fight. Mind you, I speak not mockingly, but I fought for freedom. I'm fighting now for our unity. We are women all, and what wrongs you murders me and eventually marks your grave. So we share a mutual death at the hand of tyranny. They trapped me with a chain, the gun. They trapped you with lying tongue. For lest you see that fault, that villainy, that robbed you of name, voice, and authority, that murderous greed that wasted you and me. He, the white supremacist, fixed your minds with poisonous thought. White skin is supreme. And therewith brought that monstrous change, exiling you to things. Changed all that nature had in you wrought of gentle usefulness. Abolishing your spring. Tore out your heart. Set your good apart from all that you could say, think, feel, know to be right. And you did not fight. But set your minds fast on my slavery. The better to endure your own. Tis true. My pearls were beads of sweat, wrung from weary body's pain. Instead of rings upon my hands, I wore swollen, bursting veins. My ornaments were the whiplash scar. My diamond, perhaps a tear. Instead of paint and powder, on my face I wore a solid mask of fear to see my blood so spilled. And you, women, seeing, spoke no protest, but cuddled down in your pink slavery and thought somehow my wasted blood confirmed your superiority. Because your necklace was of gold, you did not notice that it throttled speech. Because diamond rings bedecked your hands, you did not regret their dictated idleness. Nor could you see the platinum bracelets which graced your wrists were chains, binding you fast to economic slavery. And though you claimed your husband's name, still could not command his fidelity. You bore him sons. I bore him sons. No, not willingly. He purchased you. He raped me. I fought. But you fought neither for yourselves nor me. Sat trapped in your superiority and spoke no reproach. Consoled your outrage with an added brooch. Oh, God. How great is a woman's fear. Who for a stone, a cold, cold stone, would not defend honor, love, nor dignity. You bore the shaming mockery of your marriage and heaped your hate on me. A woman, too. A slave, more so. 
And when your husband disowned his seed that was my son and sold him apart from me, you felt avenged. Understand, I was not your enemy in this. I was not the source of your distress. I was your friend. I fought, but you would not help me fight, thinking you helped only me. Your deceived eyes, seeing only my slavery, aided your own decay. Yes, they condemned me to death. And they condemned you to decay. Your heart whisked away, consumed in hate, used up in idleness, playing yet the lady's part, estranged to vanity. It is justice to you to say your fear equal their tyranny. You were afraid to nurse your young, less fallen breasts offend your master's sight and he should flee to firmer loveliness and so you pass them your children on to me flesh that was your flesh blood that was your blood drank the sustenance of life from me and as I gave suck, I knew I nursed my own child's enemy. I could have lied, told you your child was fed till it was dead of hunger, but I could not find the heart to kill orphaned innocence, for as it fed, it smiled <laughs> and burped and gurgled with content. And as for color, you know difference. Yes, in that first while, I kept your sons and daughters alive. But when they grew strong in blood and bone that was of my milk, you taught them to hate me. You gave them the words, Mammy and Nigger, so that strength that was of myself turned and spat upon me. Despoiled my daughters and killed my sons. You know I speak true. Though this is not true for all of you. When I bestirred myself for freedom and brave Harriet led the way. Some of you found heart, played a part in aiding my escape. And when you made your push for freedom, my sons fought at your son's side. My husbands and brothers too fell in that battle where Crispus Attucks died. It is unfortunate that you acted not in the way of justice, but to preserve the union. And of course, for dear sweet pity's sake. Else 
how came it to be as it is with me today. You hated slavery, yet abhorred equality. I would that the poor among you could have seen through the scheme and joined hands with me. Then we, being the majority, could long ago have rescued our wasted lives. But no, the rich becoming richer could be content, while yet the poor had only the pretense and sought through murderous brutality to convince themselves that what was false was true. And so with Ku Klux Klan and fiery cross and bloodied appetites set about to prove that what is right, forgetting their poverty. Thus the racist used your skins to perpetuate your slavery. And woe to me. Woe to the boy Emmett Till. And woe to you. It is no mistake that your naked bodies on the calendars announce the fatal date. This is what they plan for you. This is the depravity they would reduce you to. Death for me. And worse than death for you. What will you do? Will you fight with me? White supremacy is your enemy and mine. So, be careful when you talk with me. Remind me not of my slavery. I know it well. But rather, tell me of your own. Remember, you have never known me. You've been seeing me as white supremacy would have me be. But I will be myself free. Justice. Peace. Plenty for every man, woman, child who walks this earth. This is my fight. If you will fight with me, then take my hand that our land may come at last to be a place of peace and human equality. For there is love, there is the serpent, and there is the dove. Thank you so much for joining us for another edition of Wanda's Picks. Tune in on Wednesday, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And in the meantime... Know that you have choices, so exercise them. Peace and blessings.